This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and today I'm joined yet again by Lee Hutchison for the latest part in our um, What's in a Name series. Hi Lee, how are you? Yeah, I'm really good. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I know where I think we're over at the, the halfway point now as, as kind of Star Trek edges towards what, eight, 800 hours or 800 episodes in movies. It's good to know that we've at least got halfway through this project. I certainly hope so. <laughs> to say this project has sort of uh, expanded and divided and kind of uh, taken up a lot more time than I was intending. I hope uh, <laughs> I hope the listeners aren't as frustrated with it as I am by this point. But um, yeah, it, no, it's an interesting one. We will we will press on. I had this goal that we were going to try and get to Endgame in this episode. I don't know we're quite going to make it there. My revised goal is we're we're aiming for what what you leave behind. But we'll see uh, where we get to today because these episodes have a habit of running away with themselves. Um, let's get cracking uh, in that case. I think last time we we got up to uh, Star Trek First Contact, the movie. The next episode after that is a Deep Space Nine episode, The Ascent. I don't have a huge amount to say about that. It seems pretty self-explanatory. Uh, but the one after that, a Voyager episode, I think has a fantastic title. One of the best of the Q puns, the Q and the Grey. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting one. Obviously, this one comes from a, a civil, an American Civil War poem called um, The Blue and the Grey. And there was also a, a miniseries from, from 1982 based on, on the, the, the poem itself. So yeah, instead of The Blue and the Grey, it's simply The Q and the Grey. I think it's a really brilliant one because it's kind of clever and also precise. There's no danger uh, reading that title that you might mistake which Q episode it is that you're dealing with. It's you know it sort of works on both levels for once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's an interesting one, kind of looking through the the poem as well and so on, seeing what kind of ties in. Well, yes, on sort of the front of it all, obviously, it's a Civil War poem. That's what we're seeing in sort of the Q continuum. Um, not much lyrically seems to kind of tie in with the, what we eventually got. It didn't seem to be much of a, an inspiration um, from that anyway. After that, we have Voyager Macrocosm. Now, uh, that I guess is, is again, fairly straightforward uh, in that this is about the, the macroscopic virus, uh, followed by Deep Space Nine Rapture which I just think is a is a very evocative 
episode title. I suppose it's another one of these Deep Space Nine episodes that really leans on the kind of religious language. Uh, and of course, this is a, a story with a, a strong religious component. But here, the title as well kind of um, only kind of emphasizes that more, I think. Yeah, it's one of those ones I always think when you look at something like Deep Space Nine, for example, you can kind of go through episodes at the beginning of a season and go, right, this one's going to be the Ferengi one. This one's going to be potentially the, the Prophet's one. I think when you see something like the darkness and the light, you get very much that sort of religious kind of connotations. And oh, Sorry, the rapture. Um, you kind of get those religious connotations that you would with um, something like kind of the Prophet's, you know, Cisco's role as an emissary. It, it just immediately kind of draws me into that religious kind of imagery straight away. Well, funny you should mention the darkness and the light because that is the very next episode. Um, I suppose it's a great title. I've always had a bit of a problem with this episode. I know a lot of people love it. There's actually a lot of, there's a lot to love about it. I do enjoy the kind of uh, the mystery and the kind of creepy, thrilling aspect of it. I find that scene at the end where the, the kind of, psychopathic Cardassian character just will not shut up about the darkness and the light a bit too much to take I feel like there's one too many references to it so when I see the title of the episode I sort of think oh gosh yeah that's the one where this guy just goes on and on and on about the darkness and the light and you have to have light in the darkness and you have to have darkness in the light and you know what if the dark isn't really dark and what if you know uh so I don't know I don't know about you I mean maybe I'm unjustly unfair on that episode for that reason because there is absolutely a lot to love in it but I've always felt that final scene is a little bit sort of overwritten when it comes to this conceit. Uh, and unfortunately, the episode title only reminds me of, of that aspect of it. Yeah, I always kind of take it as well, potentially sort of... you. With Deep Space Nine, you know, you look at a lot of kind of Star Trek shows, it very much leans into our characters or, or the light. With Deep Space Nine, we have a cast that is very much of the darkness and the light and very much in between as well. So I think that you can almost draw potentially a parallel between, um, you know, the darkness and the light and sort of what we kind of get with something like um, Deep Space Nine. Have you got anything on Alter Ego? That was the one where I recently rewatched this one where um, you have it where it's like, uh, Kim wants to purge his emotions and him and Tuvok both kind of fall for the, the weird hologram woman which is like the scientist. And is there a, and what, who or what is the alter ego? So the alter ego is that there's this lonely person on a space station. It's very much one of these kind of titles where it's like that's what ends up happening. Um, you have this this holodeck character that they both kind of fall for, and she uses sort of the holodeck to kind of project onto to Voyager when she's actually just really alone as this scientist, kind of in charge of sort of these this nebula where it's got some sort of spatial disturbance or someone going on where she has to basically monitor it to stop it kind of imploding, as it were. So you know she, she's just desperate for for company in this very very lonesome job and takes on the the ego of a and the alter ego of a quite attractive holodeck program sort of from that um kind of beach-like program they had on voyager for for a season or so yes absolutely moving on back to deep space nine we've got the begotten now this feels to me like another one of these episodes i think we talked about these before the alternate the adversary there's something about the, the, these kind of episode titles you get in ds9 in particular it's also a very biblical word i suppose uh, which again i suppose taps into this idea of, of ds9 going for these kind of religious 
uh, inflected titles more perhaps than some of the other Star Trek series. Yeah, it's it's one of those ones. That, it was one of those ones I'd never sort of was familiar with sort of the the religious kind of imagery with with the word kind of the the begotten. Some of these other ones um, kind of stand out a little bit more, but it seems to be kind of ties in quite well that. Um, especially of of a man to bring a child into existence by the process of reproduction um so it's it's interesting kind of that's the dictionary definition that they hoped an example of it would be they hoped that the king might be get an heir by the new queen so i think it's quite interesting with that because it is sort of dr mora and odo that help kind of raise this little child like miniature shapeshifter into to the world so it's it's interesting kind of that religious imagery as you touch on but very much that definition of you know a man bringing someone a child into the world where that's not often what we we think of we always think of a, a woman you know physically bringing a, a child into the world obviously this focus on the the man seems to really tie in with what we get in the episode that's very interesting i never thought of that i mean when i said it was a biblical thing i mean all those you know those endless lists of so and so begat so and so and, and this person begat that person, a kind of like family tree or a kind of lineage descended from one down to another. But you're right, of course, that is in the context of a very kind of patriarchal worldview where it is all about the man and his heir and kind of and so on. So I suppose I hadn't really thought about it, but maybe there is a suggestion in that word of a kind of uh, male focused sense of family blood ties through time and obviously it's true in this episode you have effectively in a rather strange way sort of three generations of the same family don't you you know you have odo odo's father and odo's child to a certain extent um great episode anyway but interesting interesting choice i guess they couldn't use the child because that had been taken already but um definitely an interesting word for them to choose there uh after that we've got coda this is a controversial Voyager episode. Some people hate this episode. I don't know why. I've always quite liked it, but it is slightly mad, I suppose. Calling it Coda is interesting because it suggests a sort of an afterthought. Uh, you, you know, I, sp- I suppose it's alluding to the afterlife, the idea of this sort of afterlife realm as being a kind of Coda to life somehow. But interesting to go specifically with a musical, uh, not, not scientific in this instance. And there's going to be, uh, I can think of at least one other uh, Janeway-focused episode that goes with a kind of musical title. Interesting that we go for a musical title here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I suppose it's like the de- definition of it would be the concluding passage of a piece or a movement which could be kind of fitting when we think of we see Janeway die numerous times and it's about her accepting that her life has come to an end, her her journey with her crewmates, you know, as much as she wants to stay behind, you know, there, there's an element that she's kind of battling about moving on and, and going into this kind of next kind of realm so it's certainly interesting sort of the that her life is considered a, a bit of a, a musical number as well i suppose it also it ties in with this kind of theme of the idea of a life as a kind of work of art so we have that idea first in the next gen episode tapestry where picard's life is represented as a piece of visual art as a tapestry echoed in jerry taylor's novel about janeway mosaic you know here again it's another kind of uh a visual art form that is made of smaller pieces. I suppose in both those cases, there's a similarity as well. You know, the tapestry is made of interwoven threads. The mosaic is made of little, you know, tiles, little small pieces that fit together to make the person. Here again, we sort of seem to have a sense that, uh, you know, here the metaphor, and again, it's Jerry Taylor writing this and tying in very much with that book mosaic. I think this is the episode that kind of, um, uh, 
slots in with that the most in Voyager, if you know what I mean, tries to sort of make canonical some of the stuff in that novel. Uh, here it's almost that Janeway's life is a piece of music and this is the kind of the final flourish or whatever. You know, this is the coda potentially. Obviously it turns out not to be, but that's the kind of metaphor there anyway. Yeah, it's interesting that obviously, as you say, it ties in with, with Mosaic, a book I, I've not read, but yeah, I, I like the kind of parallels between that too. Mosaic, soon to be, uh, you know, who knows, um, shoved to one side by Una McCormick's new uh, autobiography of Janeway. I don't know, I haven't got my hands on that yet, but I sort of understand from comments that she's made that there's not necessarily an attempt to make the two totally reconcile. Uh, And obviously we're going to have Janeway back again soon. So who knows whether Mosaic kind of goes out the window in terms of on-screen canon or not. But it's it's a good novel, I think, and it's an interesting one. It gives you a real insight into what Jerry Taylor was thinking about that character. Um, next up, we've got DS9's For the Uniform. Now, I can't help thinking it might be deliberate that there's a very strong echo for the cause, which was the previous story in this kind of Eddington arc. Uh, so we had For the Cause before, and here we have For the Uniform, and they're almost like two sides of the same coin. Eddington is all for the cause, Cisco is all for the uniform. And of course, it being DS9, there's a sort of slight undercutting, a slight kind of ironic uh, element, because this is the episode where, you know, um, Cisco has his famous line, you betrayed your uniform, and Eddington responds, and now you're betraying yours. So this sort of sense of is doing it for the uniform, is doing it for the loyalty to Starfleet, for the kind of patriotism, however you want to interpret that, Um necessarily the right thing yeah this was one that never clicked with me until quite recently on a a bit of a rewatch where i was like i decided to do it as a double feature and i was like oh my god and of all the years you know it's been 20 odd years since these episodes have come out it never clicked with me those those parallels in in the titles um it'd be interesting to know if other people felt the the same way um i I was i was stunned well it's maybe even more striking because then you realize that the next ds9 episode is again part of a a two-parter but one of these two parters with different titles i mean we talked before about improbable cause and the die is cast which actually have nothing those two titles are very different. They're not really linked, um, except by having watched those episodes and, and linking them in our minds. The next two, however, are very much In Purgatory's Shadow and By Inferno's Light. Great two-parter, two great titles as well, obviously alluding to Dante, Dante's Inferno and Dante's Purgatorio. And I suppose, I guess just loosely, the, the idea that... Uh, things get worse from part one to part two potentially also i suppose the inferno is like this is the episode where there's a bomb that's going to blow up the bajoran sun so there's a kind of um maybe there's a bit of a tease of that there but definitely an interesting example of ds9 linking two parts of a two-parter you know with similar but different names i i love these are two parts that i really love as well and i think with in purgatory's shadow I don't know about you or the listeners, but it's when I find myself sometimes just randomly dropping into like conversation sometimes where it's like, how do you feel about sort of seven months now in lockdown? Oh, I feel like I'm in purgatory shadow. Um, but I also think it's quite telling as well that for years we've been on the cusp of this sort of dominion war, for example. And this is the episode where it's, it's kind of bubbled to the surface. The invasion is about to happen, not as we expect, but you know, in purgatory, very much in that kind of limbo period, you know, they're not quite at war yet. They're not quite at peace. You know, what's about to happen next will kind of decide that. And then I think with Inferno, you know, you think of something being kind of lit, you know, that, 
it may not have happened yet. The explosion may not have happened. The bloodshed may not have happened, but it's, it's here to begin. And I think it is such a really striking imagery for, for a two-parter. It's interesting as well. It's a kind of imagery that gets picked up on in season seven when you get to Penumbra, which again, uh, is about a shadow effectively and is a kind of, um, and that, that again is the sort of start of, a new wave of that story and the kind of darkness to come and so on. I suppose there's, there's something of that in it, isn't there? This idea of, um, looming, a looming threat, which I guess is something that DS9 has been doing for a while. Uh, and, and it kind of continues to play for a while in a sense until the war actually sort of really gets going. But it's something that is teased for a long time and, and that sense of kind of, um, slightly doom laden sense of what's to come is definitely, uh, played on here. I guess also the, the other element of purgatory is that this is a story that takes place uh, to a pretty large extent in a prison. I mean, these people are, are literally, well, not literally in purgatory, but they, they are in a kind of purgatory. They are in a kind of, um, uh, they've been forgotten about, they, that no one knows that they're there and they're kind of, um, locked up there potentially forever. So there is a kind of a link there as well, I think. Next up, I've got Dr. Bashir, I presume, for DS9. Obviously, uh, a reference to Dr. Livingston, I presume. Um, I think there's also kind of a, an extra level of a joke there because it sort of can't help but make you think of the scene where someone is taken to be Bashir but isn't, i.e. when the, the parents come in and, and unburden themselves to the holographic Bashir and it's not Dr. Bashir. And I suppose that's sort of on a broader uh, point, the uh, what the episode is doing is, you know, if Dr. Bashir becomes the face of all the EMHs, then it's not Dr. Bashir, I presume, anymore. It's, you know, EMH for this ship or that ship or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting as well. And as I say, that sort of, I've kind of decided, I thought, I, I'm going to have a look at sort of David Livingston and see if there was any sort of ties in with kind of Dr. Bashir in terms of their, their kind of crossover. Not too much off the top of the page. A little bit more with someone like um, Alexander Siddig, you know, in terms of the British background. Obviously, that's not this kind of take in, in Deep Space Nine. Um, but yeah, not too much kind of there, apart from obviously being sort of a bit of a famous explorer and kind of, you know, such like. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. And as I say, we kind of come straight off a Deep Space Nine episode where there are sort of two Dr. Bashirs kind of at play as well here, uh, one causing more havoc than the other. And, and then in this episode we have that again we have uh dr bashir one a hologram one sort of human and everything kind of all going a bit kind of wrong when um there's a bit of a mix up there as well so i think that's got to be an interesting run of three episodes in a row um two unrelated as well where um someone has a uh, kind of body double that causes a bit of havoc on uh to the crew yeah it's a very weird uh combination i don't know how it kind of fell out that way that bashir is kind of I don't, I don't know, but you do sort of feel for Alexander Siddig, the, the number of revelations he must have been getting that month where, you know, first of all, he finds out that he's been playing a changeling for the last, you know, however many episodes and then finds out that his character is, you know, on, on some level, not what he's always said he was. It's, uh, they're definitely kind of, uh, it, it's a moment for Bashir that that point in uh, in season five of DS Nine. Yeah, definitely. I think it's uh, yeah. The, he's obviously spoken about. He they wished he had the heads up about that kind of um, revelation. And um, yeah, you can definitely tell it was a bit of a, a last minute one, and it it never sort of seemed to kind of stick as something that was a bit of a, a logical decision to make. It it definitely seemed like a bit of a a, a left field turn. And yet I feel they make it work in subsequent episodes. It is, it was, I remember it was a bit of a shock at the time. I think it's a good episode though. And I think that they do, 
as time goes on, they sort of lean into it and they sort of, it kind of retrospectively comes to make sense of a lot of things. You know, I don't think it was necessarily a bad decision or a bad idea, but I think it is definitely one that would have benefited from being sort of seeded a little bit more or kind of planned a little bit more, uh, as opposed to doing this sort of continuity on the fly, I guess, uh, is sort of what you're getting with the, with the changeling Bashir. And then here again, dropping sort of massive revelation, uh, about someone. Although you could say maybe it makes perfect sense. I mean, people always say, well, why would Spock talk about Michael Byrne and Spock doesn't tell anyone anything they don't need to know? Uh, obviously it's not something that's going to have come up. I suppose it's something that Bashir's going to be trying to sort of forget and ignore and not dwell on. So you could kind of rationalise it that way. I, I, I think there's an element of, with the viewer, a slight feeling of having been cheated a little bit by having a revelation as big as this with no clue or no... Uh, do you know what I mean? Just sort of coming totally out of the blue. N- next episode title I've got is the, the the next episode actually is Voyager's Rise. I love this title uh, just because it's very, I suppose it's an imperative. It's quite a sort of evocative, powerful title. It also just crossed my mind since it's a Tuvok and Neelix episode. Is there a sort of hint of a double meaning with the idea of like getting a rise out of someone, which is basically what Neelix is perpetually doing to Tuvok. This episode obviously is about this kind of sci-fi elevator uh, thing. So a great sci-fi concept, I suppose, um, and a very simple but quite evocative title. Yeah, as well, like the the episode was inspired by the flight of the Phoenix as well. Well, it's a slightly less exciting kind of use of the, the title, I think, Rise as well, you know, to, to take flight, to kind of you know, rise like a phoenix. You know, I, I I can see some inspiration there. It's it's one of those ones that does feel like a classic Rick Berman era um, mm-hmm. title. You know, singular. You know, sometimes they evoke something. I think rise, as you say, there's there's just something about that word that kind of just gets you excited. You know, I think of something like Hamilton. You know, how they use things like rise up, for example, the Dark Knight Rises, and um, when kind of. Um, Bruce Wayne is in the tunnel and they're kind of getting him to kind of rise up. You know, it, it is a, a very kind of evocative word for it. Then a couple of uh, TS9 episodes, A Simple Investigation and Business as Usual, both have a sort of slight, uh, well, particularly the first one sounds very kind of noirish, which I suppose makes sense. They both have this sort of slight ironic element of kind of understatement. You know, is it as simple as it seems? Is it business as usual? It very much isn't. This is the episode where you have... Stephen Burkhoff, I think, coming in and, and terrifying everyone by being this kind of crazy arms dealer. I mean, it's like everything has sort of got out of hand. So in both cases, it's kind of a deliberate sort of ironic understatement. Yeah, I like it as well because, and again, it's something that you kind of get right at the beginning of the episode. It, it just ties in so well that, you know, yeah, have a cup of tea, enjoy it, you know, nothing to worry about. And then it kind of escalates from there. I, I think it's one of those ones that you see something like that and, you know, it, it's definitely selling it as a, an understatement of a, an episode and it kind of grips you in of going, Oh, a simple investigation. That's not going to be enough to generate a 44 minute long episode. It kind of drags you in and, you know, kind of gives you a kernel of something exciting ahead. Now, Voyager's before and after. This is the kind of Benjamin Button episode. I can't help feeling this is a very bland uh, title for this episode, which which is actually a pretty good episode, I would say, and quite an interesting one. But uh, very much like Time and Again, before and after, you, you know, yes, we know that some kind of time travel or some kind of time thing is involved. But other than that, tells us almost nothing about the episode itself. I think we discussed it in in one of the previous episodes with, I can't remember if it was maybe Future's End or something. I can't remember the episode exactly. But it was like, 
it could have been any sort of of the many Bran and Braga or Voyager time travel episodes. Like you could move a lot of these episodes uh, around and and before and after it it could be put anywhere. Sort of potentially, you think of um, Shattered, which we will get to potentially eventually. Um, there's loads of episodes like that you know it's a very standard um, time travel one ties of blood and water from ds9 almost the opposite of a bland title very kind of grandiose again um and i suppose you know alluding to the the saying blood is thicker than water and this kind of question of is kira's relationship with this cardassian who at one point thought maybe she was his daughter you, you know is that a kind of blood relationship with the uh sort of responsibilities that go along with it or is it just you know a watery relationship Uh, i can't help thinking it's also significant that water rhymes with daughter and there's a kind of echo of that there you know that she's kind of fulfilling the role of the daughter um but you know what is their tie exactly is it a tie of blood or is it a tie of water i also think there could be an interesting kind of parallel with obviously we get the return of weyoun in in this episode as well you know he we died into the death ties of blood and water what are most humanoids made up of blood and kind of water even sort of i imagine someone that is bags of mostly water exactly yeah you you've nailed it nerdier than i possibly could and again you know even though he's a clone we see the sort of the return of him so a nice potentially tenuous kind of link there ferengi love songs i don't have a huge amount to say about except that it's curious in a way that it, it refers to songs especially since last time around we were talking about looking for parmark in all the wrong places but the next one i have uh to talk about is voyager's real life again very simple but again well not so much again for voyager but you know a- another episode title that is kind of deceptively simple and is sort of kind of ironic it's not real life or is it and i suppose that's the question with that episode is this is this holographic family at first, they seem a little bit kind of Brady Bunchy. Uh, they seem a little bit fake, not very real. But it's an episode that packs a real emotional punch. I mean, a lot of people uh, feel it's one of their favourite um, Voyager episodes, I think, because it's very moving what happens in the end. And it does come to feel very real by the end of that episode. I think there's an element as well where at the beginning where we are introduced to this family, it's very much like a soap opera. You know, everyone's a bit perfect. You know, the Brady Bunch, you know, for example there. And I think real life almost kind of ties in with that because I can imagine channel flicking in daytime America or soap opera time here in the, the UK and seeing a thing called real life where it's about these kind of families, um, etc. I, th- I think there could be definitely a sort of a, a, an interesting kind of concept there of you could imagine the the drama if they made it a sort of semi spin off or it was its own sort of TV show in the future of the twenty fourth century about a doctor and his wife and his you know perfect kids it being that sort of real life Brady Bunch I, I guess as a sort of soap opera title if that was its own show. Next up we have Soldiers of the Empire which again to me feels like an episode title written by a Klingon I can't remember what the last one we had uh, the Way of the Warrior I suppose was the last one I felt sounded like that these kind of again quite sort of grandiose uh, Klingon episodes which are framed very much the way that Klingons see things Yeah I, I always remember this one like there's obviously the line where sort of Iris Stephen Bear went to Ronald D. Moore, give me Star Trek Klingon, a story that we could do as a Star Trek episode but with all Klingon characters. And like you can imagine sort of that being the title of the show, like Star Trek Soldiers of the Empire coming this fall on CBS All Access. I think it's a, it's a really kind of good and telling show and sort of, yeah, I, I think it's it's really strikes out really, really well. 
another DS9 episode with a great title, I think, is Children of Time. And I love this episode, but I also just love the kind of sci-fi, sort of classic sci-fi title that it goes by. Yeah, I, I would agree with you there. Um, it's it's one of those ones, like it's, again, it's sort of a simple one where you could imagine nowadays with something like Doctor Who, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a, a Children of Time episode with something like that. And I, I just, it's again, a very simple title, but one that immediately kind of draws you in and um, so true to life, you know, sometimes these Deep Space Nine ones can have so many meanings, but but this one kind of nails it exactly. Next up, we have Distant Origin. Uh, obviously, in reference to the Distant Origin theory, which is the kind of topic of the episode, but also just quite an evocative title in its own right, I think. Yeah, this is one where I, I actually just rewatched this one the, the other day. I, I consider this probably one of Voyager's finest hours. And I just love how it, it's, it's immediately, like, this is an episode that is incredibly unique, but I just love that tying into sort of the, the origin of the theory, you know, what Charles Darwin faced. Um, you know, you think of things like the Catholic Church and how they kind of responded to scientists and dogma. I, I think this is a, a really exciting kind of title. And I think the play on it being, just an origin that centuries later, these dinosaurs that evolved are sort of looking for their kind of origin theory. And the, you know, the distance kind of ties into time, but also kind of the, the distance itself and sort of physically, you know, gone is the, you know, Earth is 70,000 light years in the, the other direction. I think it's a, a very clever, clever title on a, a lot of different levels and um, very fitting for one of the finest episodes. It's true. It's a title that absolutely belongs to Voyager, if you know what I mean, because you're right, you know, a distant origin is exactly what Voyager is about. It's about trying to get back to your distant origin, you know, get back to the Alpha Quadrant, get back to Earth. Next up, worst case scenario. Now, I always enjoy this episode and I enjoy the title, uh, partly because I feel it's, again, sort of slightly underplaying. I mean, I suppose it is a worst case scenario, but we expect that to be... It's, it's one of these kind of contemporary phrases that somehow takes on more meaning somehow when you apply it to this particular episode and, and see the, the level of like, uh, just just how bad your worst case scenario could be. You, you might think in the holodeck training program, the worst case scenario would be, uh, it wouldn't necessarily involve the threat of imminent death for real with the safety protocols off. You know, it's kind of, it just, it feels like one of those ones that is sort of almost slightly kind of ironically underplaying its hand. I really like this one as, as well in a kind of couple of respects that we think of the worst case scenario is that this situation with Seska, who could have kind of seen this coming? Worst case scenario. God knows how she managed to find the time in just those kind of couple months to get up to all these <laughs> antics, but yeah. that's something else. But I think it's also, you kind of go back to the origin of the episode. It's the worst case scenario, the early days of, of Voyager. Tuvok was clearly more concerned about mutiny than anyone else watching kind of Voyager um, or the crew where what happens if the Maquis kind of rebel? What happens if there is that, um, you know, uprising, overthrowing of the, the crew in the ship. You know, it's in the program itself is designed to be sort of the, the worst case scenario and preparing for it. You're right. He's kind of got the wrong worst case scenario. He's thinking the worst case scenario is the Marquis rebel. Uh, he hasn't realised the actual worst, worser worst case scenario is that one of the Marquis is actually a psychopathic Cardassian who's going to murder them all. So you're right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's worse than you think even. Empok Noor, I just love. I mean, I think it's a great episode, but I just, I, I, I think it's very evocative because it immediately you hear that title and you, you sort of know what you're going to get. It's going to be another, uh, space station. Um, but again, I suppose it's one of these titles that is just taking its, uh, 
name from the thing that it's about. Um, next up for Voyager, though, we have Scorpion Part 1. Now, this, I think, is a fantastic title, partly because it's one of those ones that means nothing until you've watched the episode, but then means everything once you've watched the episode. So when you first see that coming up on the screen, it feels very random. You know, we've seen the Borg cubes, we've seen this as a big Borg story. What's the connection between the Borg and a scorpion? You, you know, and it's going to take us most of the episode to find out in, I think, what for me anyway, is the kind of uh, highlight of that episode is that scene between Janeway and Chakotay where they have this real, uh, they really come you know, to a kind of stalemate in a way where they're, they're not going to agree on what the right thing is. And he tells this uh, kind of parable of the, the scorpion. Um, and it's a very strong moment, I think, in the episode and in Voyager more generally. And I think naming the episode after that moment, again, sort of draws attention to that and also suggests a kind of threat because by giving it that name, it's kind of pretty much siding with Chakotay rather than Janeway in that instance. I think it's kind of, it's lending credibility to his uh, interpretation and to the story that he tells. Yeah, it's interesting as well where I discovered that the Italian title, it goes one step further, less kind of exciting when it's called The Scorpion and the frog so um even though the whole <laughs> yeah. sort of um story itself is a fox as opposed to to a frog but um yeah and fair enough it's an interesting kind of uh parallel but yeah it's it's interesting I wonder whether they does that mean that they in the you know italian dubbing or whatever do they change the story that he tells because i think there are various versions of that scorpion story maybe in italy it's more commonly told with a frog than a fox and therefore that's the do you know what i mean a bit like the rabbit and the not the rap, a bit like the tortoise and the hare. Everyone recognises that one, the fable. Yeah, I also think you know a scorpion can you can almost potentially draw parallels potentially with the Borg as well. You know, scorpion with their venom, it kills or paralyzes the kind of their prey. You think of the um, the. I remember sort of at the beginning of Scorpion where kind of uh, the doctor's talking about and these kind of little tubes come out and it begins the process as soon as it pierces the skin, similar to that kind of scorpion scorpion tail. But, you know, again, it could be also parallels between that and um, Species 8472, you know, something that's attacking kind of the, the nervous system as we see with um, Harry Kim when he's attacked by the, the creature and how that almost is you know, kind of mutating him almost. So yeah, there's there's a lot of different scorpions potentially at play here. Then we have a uh, wonderful DS9 episode in the cards. Again, a kind of pun, I think, because obviously if we say something's in the cards, it means something is likely or something's going to happen. Uh, this is the episode where the, the war is about to happen and it's very much in the cards. And yet this is an episode about a baseball card. So again, there's a kind of double meaning there. Yeah, and it's probably the same as we kind of follow up in the next one as well. Just very simple titles, but nice double meanings and kind of can be taken very, very literally when kind of put in the context of the show. Absolutely. And Call to Arms being the next one. Now, I always thought this episode was a Call to Arms, but it's not. It's actually Call to Arms. I think because I assumed it was another one of these like sort of loose two-parters with a time to stand, a Call to Arms and a time to stand. Uh, but it's not. It's actually Call to Arms. I think it's a sense here that um, it's not just a call to arms sort of in universe, but it's almost kind of, this is the episode that sort of summons the rest of DS9, that summons this kind of huge war arc that they're about to embark on. Uh, and it sort of feels a little bit like, you know, at the end of that episode, we got that amazing shot where the, the Federation fleet is kind of gathering. It feels very much like a point of sort of saying, 
this is where we bring it all together. This is where we kind of summon all our resources. This is where we kind of uh, put it all on the table somehow. Um, if that's not mixing metaphors with the previous episode. Um, but that, that somehow this is kind of, uh, you know, it's a moment of, you know, blow the trumpets, whatever you do to, to summon your troops and kind of get everyone in line. Yeah. And it's one of those ones, again, it's been a bit of a cold war for, for such a long kind of period of time as well. And, you know, it, it's like, this is it, you know, people are being called to, you know, called to action. Confrontation is happening. You know, there's been a lot of dancing for, for a long period of time with the odd little skirmish here and there, but you know, it's, it's time to, to draw, draw your arms and kind of go to war. The next episode that I had in mind was uh, picking up on that DS9 arc from the following season, season six, Rocks and Shoals. Uh, obviously, a, a kind of nautical expression there. Uh, you know, I suppose the idea of, of becoming, you know, sort of shipwrecked or kind of, uh, you, you know, your, your passage being impeded or kind of your ship being grounded, I guess, on the on the rocks and shoals. Um, interesting choice, I think, for this episode, especially since a large part of this episode takes place on this planet. But I suppose the, the ship crashes on the planet at the beginning. So there is a sense almost again that they've, they got stuck on that planet because their, you know, their ship failed them. It got kind of, uh, caught up on a, on a rock in a sense. There's something as well about kind of rocks and shoals where it does kind of evoke in me sort of a, I can imagine that being one of my kind of grandfather's kind of war movies on VHS that you potentially had. You can imagine it between sort of, um, you know, Pelotoon and none the none but the brave. You know, so many of these ones that we we know that people like um, Ira Stephen Bear and Ron Ronald D Moore, for example, um, that they're in their minds and so on, um, and that they they kind of dive into these things. But I also discovered that there was an interesting kind of. Um, comment from from Ronald D. Moore um, that he mentioned on sort of the AOL chat if if you'll indulge me here so it's like um, the title seemed thematically right to me since the episode deals with some characters running up on the rocks and the others entering shoal water. I think the phrase itself uh, actually referred to the Royal Navy's judicial system but I could be wrong. In any case the title just came to me as I was working on the script and although later I remember the judicial connection it wasn't the initial reason for the title there are also themes of justice and military order in the script so i think it is still appropriate um, and rocks and shoals was also the informal name of the articles of the government of the united states navy these articles were uh, known for triggering swift and harsh punishment but were replaced by the uniform code of military justice in 1951 so we almost i, I kind of think of sort of the the vorta and how he kind of deals with them um, deals with the the jemadar at the end and um yeah so it kind of even expands for the episode title refers to the articles of the government of the United States nicknamed Rocks and Shoals punishment the quote the punishment of death or any other punishment as a court martial may be a ju judged and uh, may be inflicted on any person in naval service who intentionally or willfully suffers any vessel of the Navy to be stranded obviously we can get that here or run up on rocks and shoals or inappropriately hazardy or maliciously or willfully injures any vessel of the Navy or any part of our tackle armament or equipment whereby the safety of the vessel or hazard or lives or crews exposed to danger. So big thanks to uh, Memory Alpha for, for that one. Wow. Well, I certainly didn't pick up on on all of that, uh, all of those elements. That's that is very interesting. Um, when you were talking about the the kind of war movie uh, element, it made me think of another one of the episodes in this arc, Behind the Lines. Behind the Lines feels very much like it could be, you know, an old war movie. 
Yeah, and it's the same with kind of favour the the bold and time to stand call to arms. Like these are really exciting ones that just they just seem to kind of fly off the pages. You could even imagine not even just war movies. Like was it? I can't remember the name of the, the little cartoon strip that you used to kind of get where it was all about sort of those those American kind of soldiers off to to war. You can imagine that being like in big bold titles, kind of favour the bold, a time to stand, call to arms. You know, with some sort of military kind of drawing on the front. I wish I could remember. It always seemed to be something you would see sort of in um, service stations when you were kind of stopping on a, a long journey and, and wondering about spending your pocket money on one of these things. You're right. They feel quite sort of um, bombastic, quite kind of, especially Favour the Bold, quite sort of, there, there is a sort of classic, I think they are going for a kind of classic war movie in a way. I mean, DS9 does sort of become a World War II movie. Uh, war movie in some ways as it goes on um i love favor the bold as well I, I, again an imperative like rise i suppose um i think it's a it's it's a great one very strong title interestingly though then we get sacrifice of angels which is a very different mood somehow it's suddenly you know we're back to the religious kind of uh element we're back to i, I suppose the fact that it's not you know the sacrifice even in this kind of military story is not going to be of um you know, the fighters, it's not actually the kind of, you know, it's not Cisco and his crew who end up being sacrificed. It's, well, I guess Sial on one level, you know, maybe she's the angel that's being sacrificed because she's a kind of perfect innocent. I don't know whether also the reference to angels is kind of referring to the prophets and the decision that they take in this episode. And whether you see that as a sacrifice or not, I don't know. But obviously, Going forward, there's this idea that Cisco is going to be punished essentially for the actions that are taken here, that there's going to be a kind of payment exacted. Cisco arguably is kind of an angel insofar as he's half human, half God. He's a kind of, you know, uh, slightly otherworldly figure in his own right. So I don't know. I sort of wonder, is there a kind of allusion to, to something there? The fact that there are angels and not just one angel kind of makes me think that. But e- either way, it's quite it's a, it's a different mood to sort of end that arc on this quite sort of bombastic, uh, quite action heavy arc, and then it ends with this quite kind of, I suppose, a sort of moment of of you know of tragedy and of sort of reflection and of of this sort of greater spiritual significance somehow. Yeah, to kind of make two points, so I'm going to go back just a tiny little bit to, to Fortune Favour the Bold. We've always spoken about kind of Latin be, being used in, in Star Trek. Fortune Favours the Bold is is a translation of a, a Latin kind of proverb, and you sort of look at a lot of kind of its use in, in history, especially sort of the United Kingdom for for example, um, and the, the US. You know, a lot of kind of British army regiments sort of had that as sort of part of their kind of Latin or logo. Um, it's but also, I know you're someone that frequents um, Liverpool quite a bit. It's the motto of Liverpool's John Moore's University. Um, oh, the the Turing family um, used it as well. United States, a lot of the... Um, it's the motto of several United uh, States Navy ships, um, fighter wings, battalions, police service. And, and again, to go back to the American Civil War, the Confederate States, the United Service may displayed um, fortune favours the bold on its its flag, sort of in its original Latin form. For 
me, whenever I think of, you know, and I, I think this is where it's almost interesting we get that differences. I always thought the sacrifice of Angel was Ziel herself. That was always who I, if anyone asked me, that was who was, was who was the sacrifice, you know, someone that was such a pure character in, in that show that is so filled with darkness and, and grey. You know, she really was a, a source of, of light. And, you know, she essentially sacrificed herself. She had a free pass. You know, she was the, the daughter of um, kind of the one of the runners of this Dominion kind of alliance and you know she sacrificed herself to to try and make a difference to free her friends and it came at the cost of her her life even at the end you know he he she still loved her her father and he loved her and you know it was a, a tragic kind of tragic death it's a sort of beautiful grand title as well it's quite a sort of epic title it's it's a sort of soaring title i suppose for the end of this arc um and I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, the obvious sacrifice is Zial, but I suppose I just wonder whether this reference to angels and the fact that we do literally have kind of divine intervention in this episode, uh, that it's also kind of hinting at that somehow. Next up for Voyager, we've got Year of Hell. This is quite a bold title. And it's interesting. This, you know, famously, uh, Brandon Braga wanted to do a year of this storyline. You know, they wanted to really big up this not just do two episodes but do something much bigger a ds9 obviously have literally just done a six-part story it's kind of a shame in a way i mean i don't know some people have issues with the ending of year of hell and the kind of reset button and so on but in a way if ds9 could do six episodes and they weren't allowed to do a full season maybe voyager could have done a six episode arc of year of hell uh but either way it's quite a bold proposition the idea that a star trek story which normally lasts for like a couple of weeks in terms of time that's the kind of average isn't it so that they average out as a year a season and so on uh that we're going to have a story that takes place over the course of a year and also of course this episode refers back to uh a line or or several lines possibly in before and after where they talk about the year of hell um so for anyone who's seen that episode this title is going to kind of ring alarm bells immediately yeah, it's, it's such an interesting kind of one where you, you, you think of it, the year of hell is, it, I know it stands out as many people's kind of favorite Voyager episodes, but for, for me, it becomes that title of, a slightly missed opportunity as, as, as fantastic as the, the two-parter was. You know, there's certainly issues with that second part. It felt like that could have been, been something else. You know, if, if when people talk about, you know, Deep Space Nine, what we've just spoken about there, you have the big Dominion arc, the Dominion War, which if someone says to you, you know, that, that covers the sixth and seventh season, you can imagine that year of hell. Oh yeah, season four, that was the year, year of hell as opposed to just <laughs> yeah. that two-part. It just feels like, ah, I would love to have seen that. And I know there's been interviews with, Brandon Braga and Brian Fuller where they they just were so excited and and enthused by this idea and it's definitely one of those what if moments that I think if a lot of Star Trek fans had their way that they would love to see how that would have been as a a two part uh, a year long arc. Following that up we have a DS9 episode a much lighter episode you're cordially invited this is quite a fun title I think you know if you're going to do an episode about a wedding uh, to go for the, the 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 language of the invitation um, and I suppose it's also a sort of it feels a bit like an invitation to the audience to join them for this celebration for a bit of fun and this obviously is after this very heavy serious serialized story uh, this is our kind of um reprieve in a way this is a bit of a breath of fresh air i mean we had in the cards as a kind of almost sort of palate cleanser going into that big arc and now we have um you're cordially invited kind of uh coming out of it again getting out of the really heavy stuff and back to sort of business as usual in a sense and a a slightly kind of lighter tone again 
Yeah, and it's maybe welcoming back those kind of fans that, you know watch star trek for sort of maybe the next generation the family the science the exploring the relationships you know at the time you know deep space nine was still sort of the the bastard child potentially of star trek and so on and you know people that were maybe a bit hesitant about all this bloodshed and war this is their show maybe again you're cordially invited to come back to 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 the show you're you're welcome you're welcome back you know the war has been put to to one side for a little while that's an interesting way of looking at it. Rick Berman, you're welcome to come back and, you know, enjoy our show that you're, you're baffled by. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next one I had highlighted was a Voyager episode concerning flight, which is the Leonardo da Vinci, uh, episode, just because I quite liked the fact that it, it sounds like the title of a treatise. It may actually be uh, the title of a treatise. I'm not sure by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, but if not, it certainly sounds like it could be. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's an, it's again, it's a, a very evocative title, isn't it? That kind of, um, concerning flight. And yeah, I, I like it. Just it, again, it's that the tie it is into sort of the, this flight of Da Vinci's little kind of sh- ship and so on. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a nice one. Again, sort of a nice palate cleanser after quite a heavy kind of, you know, obviously it's not a six part episode or seven part, but you know, a very heavy two hours of, death despair destruction you know concerning flight you know we're we're soaring again we're we're going to have some fun i think they've had random thoughts in the meantime for what it's worth which i didn't have much to say about but that again i think is quite a dark you're right this is this is like a a jolly it's a jolly episode it's definitely a, a fun episode then after that we have mortal coil voyager again uh it's obviously a quotation from shakespeare from hamlet um when we shuffled off this mortal coil as in this, you know, physical existence. Um, interesting Hamlet, obviously a character who particularly in that soliloquy is contemplating suicide. And here we have Neelix uh, driven to the point of suicide by the end of this episode. So I think definitely a deliberate parallel being drawn there in the title. Yeah, and it's one of those ones that it ties in. Obviously, st- everyone knows about the history of Shakespeare and, and Trek and how it's been used. And, you know, when we think of it, it comes from the to be or not to be soliloquy, which we obviously know very well from um, Chang as well. So it, it's full context for for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come and what we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. So it, it's a very interesting to... Uh, um, you know, have that sort of tie in potentially with with Star Trek Six. You know, everyone talks about it. Star Trek, you know, un- the undiscovered country is death. You know, it's it's the unknown that happens after we pass away. Obviously, in the undiscovered country, they play it more as the future. So it's it's interesting, sort of being able to tie that in a little bit with um, with what we're to see there. And this is an episode that absolutely uh, hinges on the question of what what dreams may come when we've shuffled it off. You know, you know what what are you gonna experience next and the terrifying thing for Neelix is the answer was nothing you, you know he was expecting to be transported to this beautiful forest and it didn't happen he, he just you know it was a blank next up for DS9 we've got the Magnificent Ferengi I assume this is a reference to the Magnificent Seven I can't remember whether there are seven Ferengi in this episode or not I think there's seven of them yeah I don't know that the plot of the episode exactly follows the the, the plot of the Magnificent seven uh or the seven samurai but i guess there's a kind of irony there isn't there again a bit like what you had with the house of quark where you've got the kind of ferengi uh, on the one hand and the klingon you know sort of klingon heroism and then a ferengi who is almost the antithesis of that or is supposed to be magnificent ferengi you're kind of expecting 
that, that those two words don't go together, if you know what I mean. The Ferengi are almost the antithesis of magnificence. Um, and yet here we see them, you know, kind of get their act together to a certain extent. Yeah, they get to be the heroes of their own stories. So often it's very small kind of adventures they're, they're going on, or it kind of rolls around their bar. So it's a bit of Ferengi politics. They are the heroes of their, their own story. You obviously spoke about Soldier of the Empire earlier on. This could be, you know, a Ferengi show. You know, these guys are for hire. They might not always get it right or wrong, but you know, they can, they've, they can do something between them with all these killers, businessmen, you know, um, stooges as well. It, it's an interesting kind of, uh, rogues gallery. Then we have a, wonderful ds9 episode waltz now again we've got a kind of musical metaphor here i can't help think that it's deliberate uh that we have a kind of callback to duet you know in in season one we had duet with kira and the cardassian here we have a waltz between uh cisco and gold Ducat, another cardassian um and kind of touching to some extent on similar themes and similar issues about the past and guilt around the past and kind of uh, a sort of reckoning with some of these simmering issues. Um, a great episode. And I, I love the idea of a waltz as, as a way of looking at this interaction between these two characters that they're almost dancing with each other. They're almost kind of the yin and yang somehow. There's a kind of, um, and I think we do see that all the way through DS9. You know, partly Ducat is always trying to convince Cisco that they're that there are similarities between them. You know, they both have children. They both have, uh, he, he wants to sort of set them up as equal and opposite. Now, Cisco sort of rejects that. But obviously, by the time we get to the end of the series, you know, we've got Cisco on the side of the prophets and Ducat on the side of the par race. They are very much these kind of equal and opposite antagonists somehow locked in this sort of perpetual struggle this perpetual dance there's an interesting one where you you kind of look at i'm looking at like what would be the steps of a, a waltz just now i always think of it as you know you're just sort of moving you're circling each other and um, it's also characterized by the rise and fall action so you think of someone like ducat as well that he has just come off the absolute high of sort of he's retaken deep space nine you know um terok nor this is he's he's gone high the, the wormhole is going to be flooding through Everything is in his grasp and he's completely fallen from, from grace. He's lost his daughter. He's lost his sanity. He's lost his position of standing. He is uh, a nomad. And yeah, that's an interesting one where you almost kind of imagine that, well, Ducat is at a high, you know, during those first six episodes. Cisco is often a, a low. And then you sort of think of like Cisco coming into kind of that, um, the, the brig and so on. And there he is. He's, he's lording over him again. You know, he's, he's succeeded and Ducat has kind of fallen. So yeah, an interesting kind of parallel there with sort of the physical move of what a waltz would involve. Next up from Voyager, I've got message in a bottle. Uh, again, the, the old kind of nautical metaphor, I suppose, being, uh, brought into play again here for something that is a very, you know, high tech, futuristic, uh, analog for the old message in a bottle. Yeah, and believe it or not, I actually found a message in a bottle yesterday. It'd been placed randomly in, in the, the street, so people still out there are doing them. Unfortunately, I didn't open it with a, an emergency medical hologram, but yeah, I, I always <laughs> think, I always think this is quite a, an exciting kind of, um, title as well that, you know, it, 
they finally have meaningful contact with the the Alpha Quadrant, and it, this is how they get their message through there down this kind of old station line and to the ship and so on. And yeah, I I like it. Like you know that key thing there that that message is finally kind of sent. I have to ask you, Lee, what was the message that you found? I will quote it. it. So from? what was it about? Well, I saw it was just a little glass jar. If you follow me on Twitter at Lee Hutchison underscore, I posted it yesterday. So it was this little glass jar that had a little kind of brown tag on it that said read me in blue pen a little love heart on it and i thought oh that's interesting you know i wonder if someone's just doing something really nice for kind of these tough times we're going through so i opened it and it said you are the common factor in underscore all of your problems and little love hearts so it was the the most (laughs) unexpected message i've ever seen i would love to know who was behind it it was the the funniest thing it certainly made my day to discover it yesterday so yeah it was uh it was certainly quite interesting to discover uh, a message in a bottle it was just randomly placed on a a brick wall um just outside a church and i thought you know what i'm gonna open that I can't believe I found one. I wonder how many of them are dotted potentially around my, my city at the moment. Like a slightly bitchy fortune cookie, by the yes, sounds exactly, of it. exactly, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I quite like that. I mean, it's it's true. There's, there's, you know, hard to argue with that, I suppose. Okay, next up, a DS9 episode. This is a great title. I think, Who Mourns for Morn? A brilliant reference, not just to the Shelley poem, which I think we discussed did we discuss that previously or was that going? Maybe I discussed that with Tony previously, but also obviously the original series episode, Who Mourns for Adonais, which is a reference to the, to the poem. Um, but I think calling it Who Mourns for Morn is just, uh, such a brilliant move and so in keeping with the kind of sort of comic sensibility of the episode. And to be honest, of DS9 more generally as well. Yeah, I, I think it's a great, great comic title. Um, I know that they've often compared um, Morn to sort of being like Maris from um, Fraser, someone that never speaks. I can't remember the name of Norm's mother in um, Cheers. Very kind of similar. This character that's always referred to. Everyone's talking about, oh, this. she's the funniest person when you get, you know, talking and so on. I, I, I think it's such a great kind of comedy, comedy title. And it would definitely play in well with um, something like that. You build up this kind of mythology around a character. And the, the same is true of Morn, although he is there, uh, that, you, you know, there's this, and this episode in particular builds up this massive mythology around him and makes him seem like this grand sort of almost heroic character as opposed to this sort of nobody who just sits at the end of the bar drinking. Uh, I think it's a great episode. Can't help thinking it's such a great title, whether they came up with the title first and then wrote the episode to fit the title. Do you know what I mean? It almost feels like it might have been that way around, but um great one either way. Um Next from Voyager, we have actually quite a sort of DS9 style, not exactly a two-parter, but two linked episodes. We've got Hunters and Prey. And so they're, they're, they're very obviously linked. And I suppose these are the episodes that kind of properly introduce the Herogen. And so we, we kind of see them in these, uh, it, you know, I, I guess this idea of these two two perspectives, you know, the hunters and the prey, that this kind of dynamic between the two, uh, a bit like we had, you know, Purgatory's Shadow, Inferno's Light, these kind of equal equal and opposites, again, as a way of linking these two episodes. Yeah, it's a, it's a really clever one that, you know, it, it's never really clicked with me. Sort of, I've always thought of it as a two-part, but I've never sort of considered that kind of yin and yang with, with hunters and prey, and I can't believe it's... <laughs> It's, it's taken me this long for it to click. In between the two, we've got uh, 
one of DS9's finest hours. It's probably my favourite episode of DS9, I think, uh, certainly of this season, Far Beyond the Stars. A wonderful episode, obviously, it goes without saying, but a beautiful title as well, I think. Um, and also kind of sort of ironically a- accurate because obviously it's a quotation from the episode that, y- you know, Benny Russell in his story is imagining uh, someone on Earth thinking of this world sort of far beyond the stars, thinking of Star Trek being out there somehow. Uh, but equally, this is a story that is, you know, far beyond all, you know, the stars representing Star Trek and the kind of futuristic universe. This is kind of beyond all of that. This is back on Earth. This is back in the real world somehow. Uh, obviously, it's not really, you know, really the real world, but, it, you know, it's kind of in our history somehow. And it's sort of putting all that Star Trekking to one side, going beyond all of that and dealing with a story that is actually very grounded and very kind of historically specific and very real. Uh, so I think it's a really clever title. It sort of works um, on both levels in exactly the same way as the episode itself has this sort of, you know, who's the dreamer, who's the dream thing going on, you, you know, which which uh, which perspective is reality and which is the fantasy. Yeah, I, I think this is a, a stunning title to to match an, an incredible episode, and I, I think the idea is sort of far beyond the stars. It just it just feels like one of those old science fiction fiction titles where you could imagine it being like a, a little book you would be reading as a a kid or some sort of serial thing that you're perhaps watching on 1950s 60s black and white TV. You know, a really exciting kind of title, and um, yeah, I, I would love to know more about their their potential sort of. You know, involvement of that. I know the working title of the episode was The Cold and Distant Stars. Um, and they sort of, um, didn't go with that one as well. Um, so yeah, that was a, an interesting one as well. Next up, we have One Little Ship, uh, which I think is worth mentioning just because they didn't go with the working title, which was Honey, I Shrunk the Runabout, which I think would have been a much better choice. But I guess, you know, who knows? Maybe there were like legal issues there or <laughs> for whatever reason, they went with this much simpler title, One Little Ship. But it's, it's still quite a nice, quite a cute title, I suppose, which is very fitting for that episode. Yeah, and I always think of Little Ship, you know, obviously it's less so the Defiant in this case, but, you know, the the um, Little Ship used as a bit of a, a joking slur against the Defiant from, from Riker and, and First Contact. I hadn't really thought of that. That's an interesting parallel. Yeah, for sure. Honour Among Thieves, DS9 again, I guess just alluding to the, the phrase or the, the concept of Honour Among Thieves, but it's very uh, appropriate for this episode. Um and the, the, I can't think of his name, but the guy with the cat who turns out to be a sort of more decent guy than you might imagine for a, an organised criminal. Yeah, and it's it's one of those ones as well. It has that great mob kind of reference as well. You know, you think of things like Sopranos, Godfathers, etc. You know, we may have the idea of the mob as kind of these criminals, you know, up to no good. But, you know, they have so much honour codes and systems and, and how they operate. Then we have the killing game, Voyager, great two-parter. It's a slightly odd title, I think, insofar as you might expect that, um, I mean, I, I suppose, I mean, it's accurate in that they're, they're killing and it's a game and they're kind of treating it as a game and so on. But, um, I don't know. I always feel like it's a slightly odd title for this one. Maybe because we expect the Herogen to be all about hunting rather than killing somehow. Um, uh, but it, it certainly makes sense. It's, it's less, you'd kind of expect it to be more World War II specific somehow, which as far as I know, this is not, if this is a, like a specific expression, I haven't heard it before. I don't know about you. It, it feels, it, I suppose it feels more like it's kind of hitting on the sort of video game, kind of video nasty 
element, which I guess is, is, is a part of what's going on in this story, if you know what I mean, this sort of violent fantasy rather than the kind of historical fantasy. Um, whereas it seems to me that the pleasure of the episode is more in the kind of World War II action movie than it is in the uh, question of, you, you know, the rights and wrongs of this form of, of entertainment for the Herogen. Yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. It, it it does have that sort of mix up. I mean, I know that the the original title was going to be be War Game, which I think ties in quite well. But yeah, the Killing Game. I almost again, it's one of those ones like I, I imagine, especially with the World War Two one. Could I imagine this sort of being on a bookshelf or an an old kind of video? You know, you think of something like the way it leans into sort of the World War Two imagery more than sort of any of the other kind of plot lines as well. That I can imagine sort of that that killing game being being something that you could kind of pull off a a shelf. And um, yeah, I think that was that was kind of probably the the inspiration and so on sort of you know the, the hunting ultimately to you know to kill and so on that they, they don't really take prisoners we've d- discovered the the Herogen uh, much but in this case that they're going to turn them into to prey that they can hunt and and kill or or send back and, and brutally punish now going back to ds9 we have uh one another one of these wonderful grandiose titles wrongs darker than death or night um this is a quote from Prometheus Unbound uh, by Shelley from the very final speech by Demogorgon. And it, it goes to suffer woes, which hope thinks infinite, to forgive wrongs darker than death or night, to defy power, which seems omnipotent, to love and bear, to hope till hope creates from its own wreck the thing it contemplates, neither to change nor falter nor repent. This, like thy glory, Titan, is to be good, great and joyous, beautiful and free. This is alone life, joy, empire. And victory. Uh, pretty grand language uh, there coming from Shelley as well. But I suppose this idea of, you know, forgiving wrongs darker than death or, death or night, that's that's the point there, really, which is, I suppose, latent in the uh, episode title. If you don't either know or go and look up the quotation, it seems like this is an episode saying, you know, what, what Kira's mother has done is the worst the absolute worst thing she could possibly have done in a series ds9 where you know we know a lot of pretty awful things happened during the course of the occupation i suppose when you look into it the fact that it's about forgiving those things puts a slightly different spin on it and it kind of makes this question as i think you do watching the episode you know is kira being a little bit unreasonable is she being a little bit harsh you know what is that there's a gray quality to the moral quandary at the heart of this episode i think um and i suppose the title seems to want to present it as very black and white yeah and i suppose that's often is the case for for kira when it comes to to collaborators isn't it even when sort of faced with her with her own mother you know as as great and as great as a character like kira is you know when it comes to the cardassians the occupation the cat you know her feelings are, are very kind of, of black and white and 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 essentially very dark and i always remember sort of i think it's in the the documentary they were talking about potentially that it was going to be kira sort of as this sort of um you know lover or something along those lines and she immediately pushed back on it and they, there's a bit of dispute about like did they did they not what was that how did that all kind of work so yeah a very very interesting kind of title and with the prometheus you know you think of that joy empire and victory oh, that could have been a, an episode for for star trek klingon <laughs> absolutely yeah next up voyagers vis-a-vis this is one of your latin titles from that list you uh had last time round, which i think has got to have at least one extra entry on it because we had in lower decks quite recently veritas 
Now, I always thought, I, I, I was a bit puzzled by this. I always thought vis-a-vis is just an expression that means sort of with respect to or, you, you know, vis-a-vis this, uh, if you know what I mean. Apparently, I don't know if you were familiar with this. It can also be used as a noun. A, vis- a vis-a-vis is a counterpart. And this, I suppose, makes slightly more sense uh, of what goes on in this episode where there's a kind of body swap element going on. Literally, it means vis-a-vis means face-to-face. So I suppose there's also that element to it there but i i i would guess it's it's the kind of second definition it's this idea of a counterpart that they're kind of alluding to here in the title yeah absolutely yeah it's it's one of those ones i see the 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 titles continue to 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 come up and so on and um they also had the working title of perspectives as well so a slightly more dramatic and exciting title here i have to say this is another one of those voyager episodes that i slightly struggle to remember a huge amount about there's uh, i don't know it's, it's it's not one that is strongly lodged in my memory but um but there you go uh next up ds9's inquisition i guess nobody expects section 31 uh <laughs> there is a kind of sense you, you know this is almost like the spanish inquisition somehow uh this level of interrogation and so on is unlike anything we've we've seen in star trek so it's sort of appropriate to throw that word at it but again i guess it's ds9 leaning on a sort of religious inflected vocabulary yeah, yeah, I never can I consider that. I always just took it as very black and white of, you know, an inquisition. I never thought of sort of the, the religious parallels. The Omega Directive, great sci-fi title, I think. You know, another one of those ones that it just feels like sort of classic, uh, classic sci-fi story. Yeah, and it's one that see, everyone seems to be talking about just now of, uh, you know, potentially leaning into sort of the burn, etc. So, yeah, a very interesting kind of title. I mean, it immediately stands out, you know, the kind of the Greek alphabet, all, all that stuff just immediately kind of comes to, to light. And it's also quite mysterious, I suppose, because it's uh, we sort of wonder what is the Omega Directive? And that's a big part of the story of the episode is finding out the answer to that question. I quite like the episode titles that sort of raise a question that you then have to answer or a mystery or kind of you, you know you're kind of wondering okay what exactly is this uh thing that's being described here next up we have another fantastic ds9 episode in the pale moonlight now i was rather baffled when i looked up the the origin of this episode title because i know it's a line in the batman movie the the um jack nicholson uh, Tim Burton Batman movie but I just sort of assumed that the Batman movie was quoting something else but as far as I can see it isn't this is actually a DS9 episode which is named not for a poem by Shelley not for a play by Shakespeare not like Voyager for a, a concept in quantum physics but is named for a line in a 1980s Batman movie which I just think is amazing yeah, and I, I love the the full title, uh, full quote as well as how I, I, I'm not going to even attempt to do the the Jack Nicholson impression. But have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? Um, and I think that even that full con that full title, you know, we think of it in the pale moonlight, perhaps on its own of sort of Cisco in the this kind of grey mark of of what he's kind of doing. But then when you sort of think of it, you know, with him in the full one, have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? I think we all kind of know who potentially the the devil is that he's kind of doing <laughs> yeah. this dance with, and that's that's Garrick. Um, you know, he Cisco is doing perhaps a different dance move to to Garrick, but they're they're both sort of working in sort of partnership and and syncing away. And I I just think it's it's in Batman, it's a fantastic quote. And as a title, I mean, as a young kid that was a Batman fan, it immediately made me think of it when I saw that title on a, a video cover. I was like, ah. 
that's that could be a Batman reference. But I, I was the same until several years ago. I just assumed it came from from something else, some great literary reference. But no, no, Batman uh, with the script uh, from Tim Burton and Co. Um, helped inspire a Star Trek episode, and I'd love to see more of of that in the future. And it's interesting. We've had Cisco dancing with Ducat in Waltz. Now we've got. A sort of by extension, Cisco dancing with Garrick and in the pale moonlight, uh, you know, dancing around these kind of morally grey at the best of times characters, you know, sort of skirting around, uh, the, the kind of, you know, these kind of grey areas, these kind of, um, dubious decisions, this kind of, uh, sort of dark moments. It's interesting thinking of Cisco as Batman. I'd never really thought of it that way, but I suppose, you know, Garrick is a bit like the Joker insofar as he's a bit of a kind of wild character in a way. You know, you, you don't quite know how to take him somehow. He's, he's dangerous. He's, he's dangerous, but also quite sort of charming and so on. Um, Cisco, I suppose, is a bit Batman-like in a way. He's quite sort of tough and solid and sort of, um, I don't know. It's an interesting, I never really thought of the, the, the parallel exactly in those terms beyond the line, but I wonder if there is sort of something there. Um, and you know, Batman is a guy who's kind of pretty dark and brooding, but trying to stick to his strict moral code, sort of despite all of that. Um, you know, maybe Cisco's in a similar position. Yeah, and I, I think you, you make an interesting point about Garrick as the the Joker. This obviously predates them, the Dark Knight, but you think of someone like Garrick, oh, I'm just a humble tailor, someone that always had a different kind of potentially origin story at times, you know, oh, I was just a, a gardener on Romulus. <laughs> and then you think of something then, it comes to the Heath Ledger, Joker in the Dark Knight, you know, had different origin stories that you would just tell different people about how he received his scars and his past and so on. And I always think characters like Garrick and the Joker are more interesting when there's just teases or hints of what something could be and they become like the Bashir and you know they're, they're all the more mysterious for not having that fixed point of, of, um, of a character in history. So um, moving on from In the Pale Moonlight the next very ironic Voyager title is Unforgettable. Now I don't know about you I remember almost nothing about this episode so I, I feel like this was a hostage to fortune calling it that. Yeah, exactly. The only thing I've remembered from it was it had um, one of the actresses from um, Sideways in it, which is one of my favourite films. Um, sort of, uh, so that was the only thing I ever remembered about this. But it's one of these ones. It's it's such a straight down the middle thing. Chakoti and the characters keep forgetting about this woman. Yeah, let's call it unforgettable. You know, I not the most inspired choice uh, of title in the the world. Um, its original title was Proximity, so um, potentially slightly more interesting than Unforgettable. Unforgettable, though, interestingly, is also the title of a song, which um, I don't think we ever do hear uh, Vic Fontaine singing it, but it certainly is one that, that could have been in his repertoire, a song that um, was certainly sung at times by Frank Sinatra. And the next episode we have uh, coming up, DS9 episode, His Way, very much a Sinatra reference uh, in the kind of context of the whole Vic Fontaine uh, Rat Pack world of the Hollis Suite in DS9. Yeah, His Way definitely has that sort of, you know, the, the Rat Pack, um, you know, um, we think of it as well. It's I remember it was sort of Trump's inauguration song as well, you know, and, and I like oh, it as well. Right, you, right, yeah. Yeah, you, you think of it with um, someone like Odo, for example, you know, my way, his way, you know, he, he definitely has his own way of, of doing things and um, even sort of learning to, you know, after all these years and so on, learning to 
romance and seduce you know he he ends up doing it his his way he he has that kind of ownership over it so yeah it's it's a lovely little title jumping ahead a bit the voyager episode one i think is just a very simple but very clever uh little title but this is an episode where you know seven of nine is alone uh she's one very very simple just three letters but um conveys that very well i think yeah exactly it's it's that silence that you know she's all uh, all alone and so on and it kind of comes ties in kind of nicely i just finished rewatching um scorpion part two earlier today and you think of someone that early in the season was surrounded you know was brought into us with the, the voices of millions of uh, in her head a collective and you know that sort of now she's on her on her own and so on that it, it's such a great kind of journey for for her and so on over the course of the year you know she she has become a, an individual with all the kind of flaws and positives that that brings followed by the ds9 episode profit and lace now i think there are very few positive things that one can say about this episode but the title might be one of them i think it's quite a funny uh little pun uh it's just a shame that it's attached to such a dreadful uh and somewhat offensive episode yeah i i think that's it's definitely again it's one of the things if you look down at the sort of the the star of the year all oh, right these are all the episode titles it's going to be interesting oh no that's where um it kind of comes from and so on so yeah it's it's definitely probably the weakest Ferengi episode sadly going back to DS9 uh, Tears of the Prophets I think is another one a bit like Sacrifice of Angels this sort of grand epic title obviously literally the Tears of the Prophets are the orbs in the kind of DS9 uh, in the Bajoran sort of worldview Um, but here there's a sense very much of the tears of you know of the characters uh, losing one of their own and I suppose the fact that there's you know, possibly there's a link to the prophets there because I think it's not very clear at this point, this idea of this, what it is that Cisco's going to suffer for, for the decision he made at the start of the season. It, it's slightly unclear. I think later on in DS9, it sort of comes to seem that that's more about him. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I'd be interested what you're in, now we're getting into sort of interpreting prophecy here, but I, I sort of took it as more being the fact that he has to leave and he has to go to the wormhole and kind of leave his family behind and so on and, and not get his happy retirement on Bajor. But I think at this point, you certainly could be forgiven for thinking that the death of Jadzia is a sort of almost a kind of punishment. And the fact that it happens when he's away, he's away dealing with military sort of worldly concerns and then loses, you know, his best friend in this way. There is almost a sense of kind of, um, and we see the impact it has on him, you, you know, in the next couple of episodes. Well, at the end of this episode, he's kind of, um, you know, he's abandoned his post pretty much, uh, because of it. So I suppose there's that kind of sense of, you know, the, 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 the tears obviously belong to Cisco and the crew mourning, but there's also this kind of, um, there's a, there's a link to the prophets there, not at least the fact that it happens in the shrine, that that's where it takes place. Yeah, this is obviously the second series season finale of, D- of DCS9 to involve uh, prophets as well in the title. Um, season one's finale was in the hands of the prophets. You know, as you say, the, the tears are the, the orbs which go out at the end. You know, they're, they're burned out. You know, th- th- those are gone. Um, and I, I think it's one of those things, like, you look at some of the original titles, Tears of the Gods um, and Screams of Armageddon, which is hell- very, very dramatic. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those ones like, you know, you can think of the, the 
the, the literal tears of the prophets. I, I think th- they don't leave themselves the greatest amount of wiggle room with tears of the, the prophets and so on. You know, the, I, I think, you know, even the cry out of sort of the wormhole kind of closing as well, you know, potentially kind of ties in with a little bit of that as well. But yeah, it's, it's a, a really interesting kind of title. Very, very somber one as well. I suppose that makes sense as well because the wormhole is basically an eye, isn't it? I can't think, I, I have a feeling that in some of those prophecies, they even refer to it as an eye, don't they? Um, and you're right, it's kind of winking shut. There is a kind of, maybe that's why they, I suppose that's why those orbs are referred to as tears. I'd never really thought of that before, but yeah, it makes perfect sense. Jumping ahead a little bit to the Voyager episode night. Um, I mentioned, you know, we have Cisco kind of leaving his post. Here we have Janeway effectively doing, uh, the closest to that she can manage on Voyager. Very simple title. Uh, but I feel like quite sort of metaphorically, um, loaded somehow this is a, a dark night of the soul it's you know it's that it, there's the the black dark sky but there's also the kind of feeling of of darkness and gloom and this kind of uh you know difficult time that, that there seems no escape from yeah and I, I i this is one of my favorite voyager episodes and i think it's a, a really interesting kind of um kind of concept just as I say this this kind of night and I almost kind of potentially see it as sort of you hear people kind of talking about depression as being kind of that that dark kind of shawl kind of put over you that kind of feeling of being a kind of perpetual kind of night and I, I get that impression with with Janeway you know she seems to be having a very depressive episode or has been going through that as well um you know um I can't remember I'm just getting up here sort of you know you think of something like um the people called depression the black dog as well you know sort of that that kind of again tying in with sort of the darkness night you know voids etc you know I, I think there's there's definitely a lot lot here that's kind of to to play with that word jumping ahead a little bit uh to a more lighter episode uh ds9's take me out to the hollow suite obviously a reference to the song take me out to the ball game and I suppose evoking that song kind of gets you in the right mood for this quite light quite silly quite cheery episode yeah the classic kind of game there uh, take me out to the to the ball game as well so um yeah a, a really kind of nice uh, tie there very, very kind of on the nose but again it, it's again a much needed one after sort of a, a heavy run of, of episodes uh deep space nine seems to do that quite well then we have chrysalis i guess here we have the idea of sort of coming out of your shell coming out the butterfly coming out of the chrysalis uh if that young woman was a caterpillar before now she's a beautiful butterfly something along those lines yeah i I would agree with that yeah that kind of coming out from sort of her her health condition and and becoming a a new individual yeah i I can sort of see that and then a fantastic uh ds9 episode title again you know one of these quite sort of grand ones the kind of i feel like ds9 does these kind of titles that we haven't really seen since the original series um treachery faith and the great river obviously we come to understand what this means as the episode goes on um, you, you know, the, the great river, this, um, uh, Ferengi idea about trade and profit and, uh, and so on. But I saw online years ago an interesting take on this, which pointed out that actually this description, treachery, faith and the great river could refer to both the A plot and the B plot because the A plot has Odo and Wayun in uh, a runabout. Now I can't remember which one, but all the runabouts are named after great rivers and a storyline that involves treachery and faith. And in, to some extent, Nog's storyline also involves, you know, treachery and that he's going behind O'Brien's back, faith, having faith in the, in the material continuum and obviously the Great River. So, um, 
I, I think that the kind of obvious reading of the episode title is that it refers to elements from those two stories. But I thought it was quite interesting that someone actually was able to make the case that it could perfectly well apply to either the A story or the B story or both. Yeah, I, I never th- considered that angle with the, the runabouts and um, the rivers. Yeah, that, that's, I'm, I'm really excited by that idea. Next up, Voyagers in the Flesh. This is a sort of weirdly literalised metaphor, I suppose, uh, because obviously it's an expression, but then the idea that they're kind of taking on human form. I don't know, there's something slightly yucky about it to me, this idea of like being, okay, being in human form is one thing, but being in human flesh sounds a bit uh creepy somehow and the fact that chakotay is having that kind of romantic uh relationship with one of the species 8472s i guess again maybe i'm being very xenophobic uh saying that i don't know but i suppose just because they are such a kind of strange alien uh species aside from the fact that they you know previously seem to want to annihilate human beings i don't know there's something quite it's it's a strange title, I think, for the episode, especially since it's, you know, this is this kind of Cold War storyline about the, you know, the fake uh, Starfleet Academy and all this stuff. It's a kind of, it's a weird thing to emphasise, I suppose, a weird thing to focus on in the title. I think it's interesting as well when you think of it now with something like Star Trek Discovery, you think of Ash Tyler, this Klingon kind of put into human flesh and bone and sort of the process of, of that and I, I think it's interesting as well sort of we think about species 8472 they were one of the first cgi all cgi characters and in, in, in star trek as well and then we sort of see them now sort of as living breathing flesh and flesh and blood characters so an interesting sort of transformation from from a cgi character to to being being portrayed by um jobbing actors yeah you're right absolutely that uh with Ash Tyler, I suppose it's a much fleshier version of that kind of transformation. If you think of someone like Arn Darwin in both the original series and Deep Space Nine, and we, and we've seen characters, you know, we've seen Picard as a Romulan, we've seen, uh, Cisco as a Klingon. You, you know, we're kind of used to the idea that some kind of very, uh, basic sort of cosmetic surgery can be done to make people look like they're from other species. And I guess we just take it as, you know, we know on some level that the actors are just putting like prosthetic masks on and we sort of almost imagine that the characters are effectively doing the same thing. But this idea of, yeah, you're right, like with Ash Tyler, all the kind of cutting of bones and the kind of ripping of flesh and the, the really hideous, gory side of it is uh, is something that, you know, we don't generally want to think about too much in Star Trek about these procedures, but, you know... I was going to say it's more realistic. I don't, I don't know that any of it is particularly realistic, but it's, it's certainly, uh, it's, it's closer to what it might be like in our own. Well, I don't know if it's close to what it'd be like in our own time. I mean, the fact is, you know, we've seen like, uh, candid camera type shows where someone goes in in a mask or dress, you know, dresses up as an old man or, or whatever. And, and people seem to sort of buy into that for a short period of time. But I guess if you did, if you did want to be able to fool, you know, doctors and, and who knows who else you would need more serious severe kind of um rearrangement physical kind of uh reconfiguring in in quite a potentially horrific way um next up we have the ds9 episode once more unto the breach uh obviously a shakespearean title again i think quite a shakespearean story in some ways i mean core was intended on ds9 to be based on falstaff in the henry the fourth plays um and i think this is his sort of this is his kind of big moment in a sense. This is kind of the payoff uh, of that to some extent with Core having this sort of dementia and, and losing his grip slightly. And, you know, is he 
a, a ridiculous, pitiable figure, or is he a kind of, you know, is he a hero? Can he kind of be taken seriously? Um, and that kind of Shakespearean uh, aspect to it is carried through even to the dialogue to when we get to his, he has this line, uh, savour the fruit of life, my young friends. It has a sweet taste when it's fresh from the vine, but don't live too long. The taste turns bitter after a time. Uh, a sort of proper Shakespearean couplet, very poetic, very kind of, uh, uh, you know, this kind of classical style. Uh, and obviously the title alludes to that as well. Yeah, and a nice tie-in, obviously, that's one of um, Chang's lines that he likes to 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 quote as well, once more into the breach, dear friends. Um, so yeah, it, it's amazing sort of the Shakespeare kind of parallels that have continued to kind of grow with the, the Klingons. Then we have Voyagers Once Upon a Time. Obviously, this, again, I suppose, alluding to fairy tales. We've had a few Star Trek episodes alluding to fairy tales before, um, this time in the context of a kind of, you know, a story for children. Yeah, I like that one as well. And sort of, um, yeah, it's... It- that kind of like fairy tale little story to kind of send off and um you know ultimately i just i just kind of it's a it's a nice one and so on i'm surprised it took kind of this long to happen but i suppose it, there's not many kind of young characters kind of like no way wildman that it would feel fitting for then we have the siege of ar558 uh this is almost one of those episodes that's designed for like trivia or, or pub quizzes or something <laughs> you know to see if you can remember the the number um it, it's unusually specific, I think, to, to list the name of a planet. I mean, we do have lots of planets that are, you know, whatever, Beta 3 or, you know, LR Drell 4 or do you know what I mean? They have numbers in them and, and so on. But the, the fact that this is actually in the title, I suppose it gives it a kind of hardish sci-fi element somehow. Uh, it, it makes it feel very specific, I guess, which also ties into the, the kind of war element and the fact that this is a small part of the overall war, but a meaningful, important one. Um, I guess it also gets the numbers in. I mean, we talked before, I think, about uh, this theory that, you know, putting numbers in sort of intrigues people, um, whether it's the 37s or Babylon 5 or whatever it is, you know, maybe AR558, it kind of draws you in. But it, it feels very kind of mechanical. It feels very... Um, it's not the siege of, you know, I don't know, uh, moon-based Prometheus or something. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not one of these kind of grand uh, sci-fi-ish, um, uh, it's, it's not the Enterprise, it's not Voyager, it's, you know, a number. Again, it feels quite kind of un unromantic somehow. Yeah, and again, it's another one of those great kind of war titles that they seem to be loving sort of during this Dominion Dominion War arc as well. Again, I can sort of see Ira Stephen Bear sort of pulling from, from again, sort of his, his knowledge of sort of Westerns and sort of, you know, Alamo-style situations to kind of go for something like this. Then we have the Voyager episode, Infinite Regress. Now, I don't know if this counted as one of your Latin titles. I don't think it is literally a Latin title, but it's a very Latinate title with these two words, I think. And it sort of ties in again. I think there's, this is the episode that features something called a vinculum, which again sounds like a something that you, you know the Roman army might have have brought with them. I feel there is a kind of link often drawn between the Borg and the Romans. Weirdly, I mean, obviously, when Picard becomes Borg, he's turned into something called Locutus. Locutus being a Latin word again. Um, maybe there is something about the kind of Roman Empire, uh, you know, conquering the world. 
and also the fact that they they would fight the you know, the Romans. I can't think of the name of it, but Roman soldiers would fight with their shields in that kind of not quite a cube, but a sort of square formation, wouldn't they? Do you know what I mean? They they would make this kind of a mechanical shape rather than a sort of organic biological shape. Uh, maybe there's something there. I don't know, but it just struck me. It's an it's an interesting uh, title because it it feels very I don't know sort of technical in the, in that kind of in this very sort of Latinate way. So an infinite regress is an infinite regress is a series of appropriately related elements with a f- w- uh, with a first member but no last member. So kind of interesting as well with sort of seven going through all these kind of multiple kind of personalities um, as well. Sort of that is kind of never ending, where each element leads leads to or generates the next in some sense. An infinite regress argument is an argument that makes an appeal to infinite regress. So yeah, sort of I can get very much the impression of sort of this endless amount of kind of people that are sort of inhabiting kind of seven of nine yes you're right another way of looking at it is is one of voyager's sort of scientific titles in this case i suppose it's a philosophical uh concept rather than a sort of hard sciencey concept maybe but yeah it, but it, but it's a sort of obscure sort of technical term to some extent if you know what i mean rather than a kind of literary quotation or a you know or, or something like that it, it feels like in keeping with both voyager and particularly with seven of nine in that respect jumping ahead a little bit i'm curious about the movie star trek insurrection now we talked a little bit about some of the other movies and the possible titles that they had do you know i've read michael peller's brilliant book on insurrection years ago i can't remember whether amongst all the many other things that changed during the course of preparation for that movie when did the title come about and what was the kind of process of of getting to that whether i know they, they referred to it kind of um unofficially as heart of lightness as it was going to be this heart of lightness story uh a sort of riff on joseph conrad's heart of darkness but um do you know were there were there other working titles for insurrection? Was it was it going to be something else beforehand? Prime Directive was the big one um, that I always remember for a long period of time, um, which would be very kind of clearly kind of tied in with that. Um, I think that was very much the only one that I ever sort of heard of before insurrection. I actually remember it being sort of announced on. Um, for this will date me probably myself and maybe you, Duncan. But I remembered Sky had an old sort of. Um, teletext channel where you would sort of get spoilers and information for upcoming Star Trek things and there was the announcement that it was going to be Star Trek Prime Directive was going to be the movie and then I think they changed it to Insurrection sort of probably sort of a bit more of an exciting kind of glamorous title that would maybe get audiences in. Insurrection you think of big bold sort of rebellion antics. Prime Directive is very inside baseball I think. Yeah I'm just looking at um, Memory Alpha here it says it was also considered to call it Star Trek Nemesis which obviously uh, is something we will come to uh oh and star trek stardust too stardust that that's the one that was in the in the pillar uh book i think that's that's what i'm thinking of yeah star trek stardust uh which is a bit of a mouthful in a way with the two stars in there uh although it's quite a nice it's a nice idea i suppose this idea of the kind of fountain of youth and the kind of magic captures something of the magic of the film i guess whereas insurrection i think it doesn't fit very well because is you know seven people or whatever the senior staff of the enterprise uh are does that really represent an insurrection because the the baku are not exactly performing an insurrection they're just on the run the only person who's who's doing an insurrection really is is picard but to me an insurrection is a bit bigger than just like 
I don't know, a half a dozen people not doing what they're what they're being told to do. I don't know. It, 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 I think it feels it always, it always feels to me like it suggests something grander that's going to happen. Whereas in a way, this is a film. I mean, oddly, of all the Star Trek films, it's probably one of the ones where the stakes are relatively low. I mean, and they even draw attention to that, you know, that we're only moving however many people it is. Uh, no one needs to die. No planets are going to be exploded. Do you know what I mean? If if the Enterprise crew didn't get involved and throw a spanner in the works, actually, you know, the, the stakes of what's happened would have been relatively small compared to most of the films where there's some cataclysmic sort of, you know, planet level uh catastrophe that has to be averted only takes how many people does it take before it becomes wrong duncan how many people does it take (laughs) i know yeah all right fair enough (laughs) it does just it does just sort of make me wonder like whether the title is i i think there are many problems with that film but maybe the title is actually one of them that it sort of promises a different film which might have been more fun and more interesting than the one that we got um and they should have gone with the title that more accurately reflected the film that they ended up giving us when i look up the word insurrection that's the other thing the very first thing is it says a violent uprising against authority or government it's not a violent uprising they're trying to help a group of basically refugees get you know get to some caves or get to safety it's that you know it's not it's it's just not an insurrection that's the fact of the matter uh i mean it's someone like putting their pips down and saying yeah sorry i can't carry out that order that to my mind that's not an insurrection but anyway um moving on uh voyager counterpoint this is the episode i was alluding to earlier another musically themed janeway episode uh great episode and i think a great title as well yeah, so a counterpoint is the technique of setting, writing, or playing a melody or melodies in conjunction with another according to fixed rules. Um, so yeah, so obviously there's definitely a, the, the musical element in this as well, and I suppose many a relationship as well is sort of that that melody kind of off each other. So yeah, it's it's definitely a few interesting kind of parallels there, but I'm sure there's someone with a Brandon Shea Mattel or someone out there with the, the musical ear that would be able to give give it a better definition of counterpoint as a, a musical term with this episode than I. Well, it's an episode that makes beautiful use of music as well and where they talk about music and they talk about counterpoint in music and so on. So it, it, it very much fits the idea of it uh, having a musical title. But I think you're right. Yeah, also this idea of, you know, something on the surface and then something underneath you could see that as Janeway and the and the love interest but you could equally see it as Janeway and Janeway because what's happening in that story is that Janeway as much as she's sort of wanting to trust this guy she's also kind of playing him at the same time she's playing uh one note on the kind of you know on on the outside and then she's playing another game sort of underneath almost a kind of subtext or a sub uh you know a counterpoint to that in a sense and that's what we find out at the end is that Janeway has not been fooled she's not been kind of uh tricked by this guy she's been you know uh playing a, a much more sophisticated tune than than we thought she was somehow next up ds9's it's only a paper moon uh great song great episode uh perfect confluence of the two i think you know is the holodeck nothing more than a sham? Is it just fake? Uh, it, you know, is it just a paper moon or isn't it? And I suppose that's the question that this episode raises. Is it only a paper moon? Um, yes, on the one hand, you've got uh, Vic Fontaine saying to Nog, you know, you can't live your life in here. This isn't real. You need to get out in the real world. On the other hand, we kind of get the sense this is an episode where 
Vic feels as real as he ever does at any point, if you know what I mean. This kind of act of kindness, this kind of gesture of humanity in a way. If anything was going to convince us that Vic is a real person, this is probably it. Yeah, I think the the parallels, this is a song that I'd only ever heard for the first time when I I watched this one. And I, I just love the kind of the parallels between this, the holodeck, Vic, you know, the world sort of Nog's kind of thrown himself into. Yeah, and obviously it ties back into the, the episode, kind of a few episodes previously, CJOAR 558. This is the song that they are playing when everything kind of goes down as well. So it sort of nicely ties it into a sort of a nice double feature episode. Next up, DS9's Prodigal Daughter. Obviously, uh, we're going back to the Bible again. We've got the, re- you know, the prodigal son normally returns. In this case, it's a prodigal daughter uh, returning it's interesting that DS9 again sort of leans on a biblical reference point. Although I don't know that the episode particularly fits with that, except in the, the kind of broadest sense of, okay, this is a daughter coming home. But it's, 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 it's typical of DS9, I suppose, to go for that as the, as the illusion. Yeah, and I suppose it's quite heavy as well. Sort of um, the kind of to be a prodigal son or daughter is someone who leaves the home to do things that they do that the parents do not approve of. Um, but the, um, sorry, a son slash daughter who leaves his or her home to do things that they do not approve of, but then feels sorry and returns home. So yeah, kind of a, a little bit thing. But you know, you don't get the impression sort of Esri feels feels sorry for her decisions that she's made. But you're right. There's a, a degree of like. Uh, disapproval from the parents, I suppose. So yeah, it, it, it does kind of make sense from that point. Latent image. Now, I had to look this up. A latent image is actually a term from photography, uh, and it's what the film looks like before it's been exposed, where you can see something of the image that's been captured on it, but not the kind of complete picture, which is very appropriate uh, in the context of this episode. First of all, because he, he uses his hollow camera to uh, sort of work out what's going on. You know, he, there's that great scene where he discovers it's actually Janeway who's been tampering with him. And secondly, because, of course, the Doctor is himself made of light, made of photons. Uh, so there's this kind of sense of, I don't know, the, the, the image created by photons in photography it is you know this sort of faded image, this kind of kind of occluded image. Here we have the Doctor, who is a, a being made out of light, but doesn't quite know himself. There's this kind of murky mystery uh, at the heart of him. I think it's a great um, title. The, the more you look into it, the more uh, evocative and, and the more meaningful it becomes. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you you've said there. Bride of Chaotica. I think is this the only Star Trek episode title with an exclamation mark? It may well be. Uh, I just wanted to signal that really i suppose the fact that it's it's written in the style of of a captain proton installment rather than the style of a star trek episode insofar as you know uh they managed to to put that exclamation mark in there yeah i i never never realized that and I, i'm just rattling my brain trying to go through all 800 and i think you're you're spot on the emperor's new cloak ds9 obviously referenced the emperor's new clothes um only in this case, a cloaking device. I mean, this is a pretty ropey episode. I think this is a pretty ropey pun. It's, it's a, I suppose it's a clever title. Maybe if it was a better episode, we'd forgive the cheesiness of the title, but I don't know. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of the sort of, they seem to always kind of go a little bit punny with um, sort of the mirror universe ones. You know, you think of crossover, um, shattered mirror, etc. You know, they're, they're a bit kind of heavy handed, whether that's kind of a creative choice. I'm, I'm not too sure. Field of Fire. Now, I don't know why I always imagine this as like a kind of 
uh, as referring to a field as in a, a sort of um not literally a field that was on fire but a sort of a, a room where everything had kind of uh you know caught a blaze or so like a, a sort of scene of, of disaster but a field of fire when i look it up is actually is just the, is the kind of range that a weapon can it's the field in the sense that this is the range that the weapon can shoot to which makes a lot more sense uh, in terms of this episode which is all about this uh, weird gun that can shoot through walls or round corners or, or whatever it is it's quite a strong title uh, either way but it certainly makes more sense to me now that i've looked up what it actually means chimera chimera obviously is a sort of mythical creature that is part one animal and part another like a centaur i suppose arguably i mean i, I suppose we're meant to think that Lass is the chimera here, but maybe Odo is the chimera. I don't know. You know, Odo is the character who is sort of between two worlds. He's part solid and part uh, changeling. He's part, you know, one thing, part another. And that's what the kind of um, discussion in the episode is about, really, is is who or what is Odo at this stage. And I think it's interesting. You look at Scientific America um, and how they define a chimera, and it seems really interesting when you think about the, the shapeshifters, what we've seen. So a chimera is essentially a single organism that's made up of cells from two or more individuals, that it contains two sets of DNA with a code um, to make two separate organisms. One way that chimeras can happen naturally is that uh, in humans is that a fetus can absorb its twin. So I'm always thinking of, I think it's the begotten or something, I, I think I'm correct, when sort of Odo absorbs the, the shapeshifters so you know potentially a little bit of a, a throwback to then of sort of Odo sort of kind of being a father figure and potentially like a brother to to a shapeshifter but this one much older. That is very interesting that I suppose this is a word that yeah I immediately reach for the mythical association which I sort of imagine is what the DS9 writers had in mind but equally is a is a term that exists in kind of contemporary science and means something much more specific and scientific. So, you know, it could, you, you could take it either way for sure. Um, next up, Dark Frontier Part 1. Uh, I just quite like, uh, you know, I suppose it's just the idea. It's not the final frontier anymore. It's not the kind of hopefulness of, of traditional Star Trek. Now it's a dark frontier. Uh, it's sort of putting a, a more sinister spin on that. Yeah, I like it. it's a nice ominous title as well for for a big two part mid season two parter. You know, sense of dread and you know it aims to make the Borg threatening. I guess again. Then we have Voyager following that up with the disease. This is a, a, a not a great episode, I think, and and tries to posit this idea. Well, first of all, that the, that the disease is love, and that seven and nine has this speech about how love is like a disease, but then in fact involves Harry basically getting an STD. So I suppose you know more prosaically, that's the disease. Uh, I think I think the episode wants you to think the disease the title is alluding to is love, but maybe whether you buy that depends on how far you're willing to go with this episode itself. Bada Bing Bada Bang, fantastic uh, title again from DS Nine. Uh, more commonly, I think the, the, the expression is bada bing, bada boom, which is a kind of Italian American expression. I suppose there's that association with, you know, the, the mafia and so on as there is here. Uh, but the bang in this instance is obviously the kind of, um, you know, the threat of, 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 of death. I, I don't know whether the bada bing as well as kind of, to me, it sort of almost, evokes the sort of in the casino context you know the the, the money and the kind of like the, the slot machines and all that kind of thing i don't know if that's deliberate or if that's oh yeah i get but, that um, yeah i think it's a great you know uh because it sounds it sounds so fun bada bing sounds so fun and then bada bang sounds kind of like oh uh-oh uh which is exactly what's going on in the episode but great title uh either way 
um, followed by Voyager's Course Oblivion, uh, another one of these great sort of classic sounding hard sci-fi titles. Uh, and then DS9 really playing that Latin card with, with Inter Arma Enim Silent or Silent. I don't even know how you pronounce that in Latin. Leges, uh, which fortunately the episode itself glosses for us as for in times of war, the laws fall silent. This again is very sort of grandiose, uh, DS9 sort of classical sort of posturing in a way, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, uh, and another one of those kind of pub quiz episode titles, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, there's an interesting little uh, conversation where um, they, they chat about the title. So Ira Stephen Bear joked, I think Ronald Deemer was trying to get even with Hans Bilmer for, uh, f- uh, and me for Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night. Or maybe he was looking to top everyone else. So he thought, Latin. Um, in actuality, writer Ronald Deemer arrived at the title of the episode while browsing a bookstore. I think we've kind of very much got this impression that they like browsing bookstores and film <laughs> stores at a point when he was yeah. already working on the episode, but hadn't yet titled it. He found a copy of a book by William Ranquist dealing with the um, prerogative writ of Herbius Corpus and the suspension during the world American Civil War on the book jacket Moore discovered a blurb in which Abraham Lincoln's suspension of the writ of Herbius Corpus is described as a classic case of the old Roman dictum inter armis silent legus he felt that the phrase would be, um, be perfect of the episode's title as it synchronised well with the instalment's theme he sent the phrase to the show's research consultant Jonah Pierce and talked about it with her ensuring that he had the line correct Pierce pr- provided a longer version and told Moore that he could arrange the words as he saw fit since word order did not matter in Latin word order did not matter in Latin so there we go Moore uh, Moore noted we monkeyed around a little bit with word order so it looked good and sounded right I was kind of proud of it despite Ronald D. Moore being Satisfied with the title, he found it questionable by the others. People kept bugging me about it, going, what the hell does it mean? What is this title of yours? I took perverse <laughs> glee in that. Moore reminisced. The Voyager guys looked at me like I was crazy and nobody knew how to pronounce the title, but we're going to stick with it. I love that. <laughs> I think that's a great story. That's probably the best story we've come across since Nicholas Meyer talking about the, the wrangling over, you know, uh, the wrath of Khan and, and again, the undiscovered country. I mean, it, it gives a real insight into this naming process and, uh, and you know, where they're kind of pulling these things from. And absolutely, it makes sense to me. The DS9 writers are, are you know, browsing used bookstores and, and coming up with their titles. And very telling about the Voyager guys being judgmental about this kind of exactly. title. When we yeah. look at the yeah. look at the regs <laughs> and the rest of the episode titles we've got for this season from them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, going into the kind of final stretch uh, for DS9, then we have, uh, as I mentioned before, the episode Penumbra. Uh, Penumbra is... Uh, it is, it could, this could be a Voyager title. It's a term in kind of physics and, and, and so on. But it's, uh, it's basically a kind of partial eclipse. It's the kind of the, the period before the complete darkness of the eclipse. So very appropriate for this episode that is kind of leading us into this final dark period uh in the story i also like in the the building i kind of like do not work in at the moment but i'm actually there's a a charity called penumbra and it's um they they have a little thing underneath their thing you know just their little description so it's penumbra and it always says your way to a brighter future so well for some it might be that partially shrouded uh shrouded or kind of the shadow cast but it can also be potentially they're feeling like maybe it's a glass half full so you know it could be this thing with this looming darkness, but also the positivity of a, a marriage on the horizon and perhaps a child to come. Well, that's interesting because I took it as the penumbra is the point before the eclipse, 
But it may be that the penumbra is also the point after the, do you know what I mean? Like that you get one, you get one either side, don't you? So it could be, it's a bit like the, the eclipse is sort of the eye of the storm. You get the, you know, you get the penumbra either side of it in a way. Yes. You mentioned the marriage next episode till death through us part. Obviously, uh, you know, take it from the wedding vows. I suppose there's a quite, uh, striking difference in tone here though, between you are cordially invited, which is basically sounds like you're, going to get to come to a great party until death do us part, which immediately invokes the idea of death. Although, of course, ironically, they are parted, but not by death. Uh, although I suppose you, you, it's slightly ambiguous at the end of DS9, whether Cisco is alive and in the wormhole or dead and in the wormhole, but it's not really death that separates them ultimately as the story goes. Followed by Strange Bedfellows, uh, a Shakespearean quote again... I'm glad we're not having a drinking game every time Shakespeare comes up. I mean, the the, the quote from Shakespeare is that uh, misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. So, um, yeah, I think we, that very much ties into a double one here. We've got um, Goldacat and Kai Wynn, and then we've also got kind of the Dominion and the, the Breen as well. So an interesting kind of combination, um, both kind of coming out of, of left field somewhat. And then again, you, you know, if we're talking about the strange bedfellows of, of Descartes and, uh, and Kai Wynn, uh, the changing face of evil is an interesting one. I mean, you, you could take that as the, you know, as you say, like the, the, the changing face of the, of the war and so on. But I sort of assume this is a reference to his face, you know, and the fact that he's disguised as a Bajoran and, uh, or at least on one level, I think that's, that's how I would take it. It, it reminds me a little bit of the Voyager episode faces where you think it's going to be about faces in some sort of more abstract way. And in fact, it's literally about someone's face being, you know, <laughs> ripped off or, or, or changed. A couple of Voyager episodes, uh, sort of slotting in here. Someone to watch over me, obviously named for the song, which features, uh, in the episode, uh, quite sort of innocent, sweet title for, I suppose quite a sort of bittersweet episode in a way. Then back to DS9, when it rains, obviously from the expression, when it rains, it pours. Voyager's 1159, uh, which I think is quite a clever title. I mean, we talked a little bit about the use of numbers in some of these titles. Uh, I can't help wondering why it's not 2359, but I suppose maybe they're trying to make it sound more old fashioned and more, uh, you, you know, folksy and kind of, uh, you know, not too sort of military, not too kind of 24th century or whatever. But, um, it's an, it's an interestingly, it's an interesting choice, I suppose, to make that episode and not give it a kind of, cause it's a bit of a sort of Hallmark movie kind of episode, isn't it? It's a bit kind of cheesy. It's a bit sort of, um, it's a very odd departure for Star Trek. And yet they've given it a title, which makes it sound a bit more cool and a bit more sort of, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an odd marriage of title and episode. Yeah, um, yeah, and I suppose it just keeps it nice and simple, and nice on the eve of the the millennium as well. I suppose so many people were counting down to to that moment. So yeah, it's, we've recently had obviously the thirtieth anniversary specials, and now we've got a, a millennium special to to date the series to. Then we have for DS Nine tacking into the wind, kind of return to the nautical metaphors again from rocks and shoals and so on. Tacking into the wind, obviously, you know sailing into the wind is quite difficult because you're being pushed, you know, the wind is coming at you in a way. So I suppose there's that sense of the kind of challenge of that. And the only way you can do it is to keep tacking, i.e. changing course constantly uh, in order to kind of use the wind. So I suppose there's a kind of sense there of the it being something of an uphill struggle at this stage. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, especially with the way the war war is going as well, and I almost think we'll probably see something similar to to Jonathan Archer at the end of Broken Bow uh, down the line as well with something like this. Extreme measures uh, sounds very much like a sort of nineties thriller to me, like yeah. a nineties action thriller. Uh, you know, it was. Uh, it was. Yeah. Oh, was it? It was actually. Well, there you yeah, go. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Hugh, uh, Hugh Grant and Gene Hackman. Uh, so Michael App did one. It was a 1996 oh, okay. um, drama about ethics and medical sacrifices. So um, oh, yeah, okay, I wonder whether uh, there's uh, maybe that's a, a double bill to to try one day. Um, followed by another Shakespeare entitled "The Dogs of War." Uh, you know, you were talking about General Chang in Star Trek Six. Is another one of his old favourites. Um, being unleashed here and then we get voyager equinox part one now weirdly we just had penumbra and the reference to the eclipse on ds9 and then not that long after we've got a reference to the equinox now i suppose you know both of these are sort of metaphors of darkness and light i I know there's a ship called the equinox obviously in this episode but i think the fact that they called the episode equinox and the fact they called the ship that to be honest uh suggests this idea I don't know about you. I mean, obviously there are two equinoxes in the year, but the one it makes me think of is the dark one where the days are at their shortest and the night is at its longest. And this idea of a sort of, you know, we already had night with Voyager. Now we've got a kind of spiritual night in a sense for Janeway and for the Voyager crew as they meet this kind of dark mirror in a way for themselves, don't they? With the crew of the Equinox, this this crew who've not stuck to their principles, who've done something very different. And Janeway herself has this sort of moment of almost kind of losing herself in the course of these episodes. Yeah, yeah, that was my take as well. Obviously, the the two kind of crossing over, obviously, after kind of five years and sort of the, the clash that will come from it and the, the crews within. And then finally... DS9's What You Leave Behind. Beautiful finale. I mean, people always debate which show did the best finale. Was it Next Gen with All Good Things or was it DS9 with What You Leave Behind? I think they're very difficult to choose between in a way. I mean, I think the the Next Gen finale is more of a kind of perfect package, but whereas the DS9 is trying to wrap up an awful lot of stuff, it, it doesn't necessarily stand on its own terms in the same way. But I think there's an interesting kind of parallel there. You know, All Good Things there's a kind of bittersweet quality to it, but it feels quite sort of final. It feels quite sort of, it it, it gives that sense almost of kind of a package somehow. Whereas what you leave behind is very open. It's very kind of mysterious. It's kind of, it's more ambiguous. There's a sense of loss. Uh, There's some debate even about what the actual quotation that it's alluding to is. Um, I think the, the kind of accepted one is all that you take with you is what you leave behind, which is almost kind of, it's one of those sort of wise sayings that's almost meaningless. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's hard to sort of decipher exactly what it means. But I suppose I've always took it as being about Cisco leaving and about, and and the others leaving, I suppose, because, you know, you've got O'Brien going back to Earth and so on. And this idea of what they've left behind being these kind of relationships, these friendships, these kind of, um, not just the people that are left behind, but the sort of, the the echoes of the past and the kind of... um, I suppose a little bit like in Emissary, we had this talk about being linear beings and, you know, why do you exist in this time? Why are you stuck in a different part of time than where you are? Something something of that somehow, that quality of, of your your kind of, I don't know, the, the, the traces that people leave somehow in with others. 
I often think of it as being sort of Jake Sisko, you know, and his uh, Sisko leaving behind Jake, his unborn child, and his his wife behind, you know, the, that that's what he's left behind to to go to this higher plane. Yes, he may be back tomorrow, today, you know, it's it's all kind of left there. But again, I agree with you. It has that sort of slightly finite things as well. Sort of, you know, it wasn't like Next Generation where you know you've got an ellipses on the end, all good things. Well, it didn't come to an end. You know, it went on and had a, a a run of four movies it's had a subsequent spin-off and um, you know these characters have continued to to live on deep space nine was was very final you know the, the closest we've got to really see many of these other characters was a statue of chief o'brien in, in star trek lower decks and then on top of that you know we've had a, a documentary series it it was was the end because Deep Space Nine, as we touched on, wasn't the most popular series in the world with with viewers and so on. And then, you know, it it was all that was going to be left behind, really, essentially, was then now kind of Voyager, which was a bit more of the the more popular show. But time has been been good to to Deep Space Nine. And I think and I love that the documentary title almost um, mirrors that final episode, what we left behind, you know, and and when they talk at the end, what did they leave behind? And as uh, you'd nailed it perfectly, you know, the people, the, the loved ones, their experience experiences that they left behind on this station like Deep Space Nine. And I think that's the same for the characters. Many of them are are moving on into new positions or phases in their life or away from the station. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a, a lot to play there. And there's that beautiful quote as well, isn't there, from the documentary with uh, Aaron Eisenberg, which I think they, they released a longer version of after he died, where he, he sort of said, I didn't leave any of it behind. You know, I took all of this with me, essentially. Uh, you know, everything that that experience meant to him was something that he kind of took with him throughout the rest of his life somehow. And I suppose that's true that you know you're right ds9 is sort of uh has has found its place in a way that maybe it didn't have as much when it was airing at the same time we haven't it is still as of all the star trek shows it's the one that probably ends on the greatest unanswered question in a way in that we still don't know uh what happened with cisco you know did he come back uh i mean we've had his promise that he was going to come back at some point but we don't know when um obviously you know we've had we're sort of picking up on the Picard story. We're going to be picking up on the Janeway story uh, with Star Trek Prodigy. It feels very unlikely that we're going to find a way of picking up on the Cisco story because Avery Brooks, it seems extremely unlikely to to be willing to be dragged back to Star Trek. Although who knows, you know, they managed it with Patrick Stewart and Kate Mulgrew. But it does feel to me like the fact that there's something unresolved at the end of that story is almost... Uh, feels kind of like a, a perfect element of it. Do you know what I mean? That That is the perfect ending for this series. Uh, it's not a neat, tidy, next-gen ending uh, or, or a kind of rushed, uh, slightly madcap Voyager ending. It's, it's, it's the ending that suits the show. It's this kind of quite open, quite rambling, quite um, mysterious, evocative, but ultimately slightly ambiguous ending. Yeah, it's, it's as I say, it's the perfect ending for probably the perfect Star Trek show um, to date. Well, that seems as good a place as any uh, for us to leave off for now, I think, Lee. But as ever, it's been uh, a pleasure having you on the show to talk about some of these titles. Um, before you go, do you want to let our listeners know uh, where they can find you online if they want to continue the conversation and what else you've been up to recently? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Lee Hutchison underscore or at Star Trek VHS. You can find me on my own podcasts, Filibuster or the A24 Project, which are available wherever you download and stream podcasts. Fantastic. Thanks again, Lee. 
You're blended all right. When I look back about what I left behind, all I see are seven years of, of joy. I mean, I, I had such a wonderful time. That seven years changed my life. It didn't just change my life because I was part of Star Trek. As an actor, I had so much fun. It was such a joy to play that character. Nog was like, he was so parallel to my own life. And I don't think, I don't know if you knew that. It was almost because you guys were there, somehow you picked up on who I was and you put that in that character. Because his life was, was literally parallel, but just amplified, because Nog was amplified as a Ferengi. You know, I, I went through a kidney transplant at, 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 at 14. When I was 17, I got into acting. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I, and I made that choice, which is outside the norm of our regular society. Nobody, people, parents are like, oh no, don't go into acting, go be a doctor. And I did it because I fell in love with it. And I thought to myself, I don't know how long I've got. I don't know, I might have four years, I might have 10, but I'm gonna fucking go for it. Cause I don't know where it's gonna take me. And I wanna know that I at least tried. And I did. And every time you guys call me, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm working. I'm, I'm, my dream is coming true. And not only was I working, but you guys were giving me great stuff. I had a great cast. I had a great crew. I had great production. Every time I worked, I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is the life I set out for. Nog went through the same path. He went through the same path. He was in something. He had change. He said, I want to go for that. He went for it. People gave him that chance. People gave me a chance. And that's what, I, and I don't even think I left it behind because I always carry that love for the show with me wherever I go. And when I get to go to, to Star Trek conventions and meet the fans and they say how much they love the show and then I see their kids that are 10 going, oh, Nog's great. I love Nog. I'm like, man, look at this. I'm part of this. I will forever be a part of this. True. And that's, no one can take that away from me. So when you ask me what I've left behind, I can't think I left anything behind because it's still here with me every day.